Hi there, and welcome to season one of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services and to see all the places this podcast can be found, go to bertscholl.com, B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Shara Delia. Shara is a mixed media artist and painter and a flat closure advocate and activist often using her art and social media platforms to share and connect with others. All right, Shara. Hi. Welcome. Hi. How you doing? I'm great. How are you feeling? Pretty good. Good. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So where should we start? Why don't we start with uh, let everyone know what you were diagnosed with and when? I was diagnosed on November 28th, 2011, with breast cancer. I have hormone po- I had hormone positive, HER2 negative, for those of you that know what that means. I want you to say what that means. It's a protein, and it is a type of marker that, you know, obviously I'm not very sure, but it has to do with how aggressive it is. And since mine was negative, that is a little less aggressive. Mm-hmm. HER2 positive, my understanding is that it's a little more aggressive, but they do have ways to treat it. Another medication specifically for that. Hormone positive, HER2 negative, breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how did you how did you find out? I found out um, just I was having some pain and a little extra pain around you know just around the um, the armpit area, which isn't that uncommon for women to have a little pain, especially if fibrocystic. Breasts are common, dense tissue. So I was in for my mammogram. It was only the second one that I'd ever had. And everything was fine. They gave me a mammogram. They said, you're fine. We'll see you next year. But I was having this pain. So luckily, I did have one doctor say, well, let's just do an ultrasound just to be, just to be sure. So we have an ultrasound. And I'm grateful that we had the ultrasound because we didn't wait a year because they found a suspicious spot and biopsied it and... And it ended up being positive. And is that because of the dense tissue that they didn't see it in the mammogram, but they did see it in the ultrasound? That's what I learned later. Um, they showed me what my mammogram scans looked like, and they were solid white. So I always tell people, or women, when you have a mammogram, ask to see what they look like. Because if they're solid white, then they can't see anything. If it looks like a nice little spider with black and white, mm. they'll be able to see a mass. But really what women should do these days is find out what their breast density is. Because if you have a real high density, there are other ways that will work better for you than a mammogram. So a higher breast density can blind the radiologist the do- or the doctor from seeing potential uh, yes. um, yeah. Yeah, growths. Uh, you can't really see an area, because how they show up, and, and a suspicious area on a mammogram shows up as a white, a white area. But if you're, if you've hard breasts, high dense breasts, the whole thing is white. So you're not going to be able to tell the difference oh. or see it. So so you essentially received a scan yeah. that wasn't going to provide any information for you anyway. No, they, they sent me, they were like, you're fine. See you next year. And actually, in fact, I had a mammogram in 2010, the year before that didn't send me away for a year. So they could have detected it a year earlier if perhaps... Yeah, so, so you never know. And so, what was it? They said you can go home, but then they did the ultrasound because of the pain. So, was that? Did you request it after yeah. they said go home? No, I would. That was it. Was bothering me, and um, 
Okay, so I'll be honest. This is one thing I hate to admit, but my nipple was actually leaking. And I hate to tell people that part, but I actually had a little bit of nipple leakage going on along with the pain. And that was really, you know, my, my doctor was saying, oh, you know, that's just fine because you're, you're 44, that happens, you're having, you're going through changes, you're fine. But because of between the pain and the nipple leaking, they said, well, let's just do an ultrasound just in case. So I'm very lucky that I had other symptoms. If I didn't have any other symptoms, I would have waited another year and the cancer would have potentially grown. Yes. First of all, thank you for being so generous and being willing to, you know, be that honest and acknowledge that. I usually, I do tell women, but it is something that it's just an extra visual that I usually leave out, but it's important to know it. That doesn't always mean that it's cancer, but in my case it did. And I have heard of other women that have had the, um, the leaking, be a sign. Yes, so that's not something I can relate to. So may I ask right. you a question about the hesitancy in speaking about it? Sure. What what had you hesitant to share that piece of information? You said it just because it just uh, is uncomfortable, just that the breast was leaking, simply yeah, that. Yeah, I think I'm. All, I already kind of go through life as you know. People know. Oh, she doesn't have breast. She's that woman that had breast cancer, and it's just one little added piece that I've kept a little more private because I didn't want to be known as, oh, she's the lady that had the leaky nipple and then that added to everything else. Hmm, okay. It's just that little extra layer, but I actually don't really, I'm at a point now where I don't care. I mean, you know, Yeah. I think it's just when I was younger, that really bothered me. And I'm in a habit of not telling people. Gotcha. But we're, we're sharing all on this now. Yeah. We want to help people that are going through the same thing. So Thank they don't you. feel like they're the only one with a leaky nipple. So they gave you, am I understanding correctly, that they gave you the mammogram. They mm-hmm. said, you're all clear. And you said, well, I'm having pain and my nipple was leaking. They could see the, the, nip, the nipple leaking and I was also having pain. And so even though my doctor, my, my main doctor, family doctor, whatever, she was like, ah, oh, you're probably fine, blah, blah, blah. Because of that, the breast specialist said, no, let's just check it and have, have an ultrasound. And that ultrasound really is... Do they stand side by side, like one doctor said it's okay? Or is this after the first ultrasound, then they give you the results and said, we'd like you to come back in? This happened, they did it right away, and I'm very grateful for that. I didn't have to wait. Um, yeah, I had the mammogram. They said, let's just have the ultrasound. I went right in and had the ultrasound. Okay. So maybe they were a little more worried than, I, than they let on. I don't know. So then I had the ultrasound, and then I went home, and they did, they did call me in for a biopsy. So I, we really do appreciate you elaborating. Um, Thank because you. No you're welcome. Yeah, cause I also was told by my doctor, I had two different digital exams by the same doctor who told okay. me that, you know, because I had rectal cancer and I was passing blood, and two different digital exams each time he told me I had hemorrhoids. And I went back in a couple different times, because I was like, Doc, I'm like old faithful, you know, like I'm just passing blood all the time. After four visits with him, I finally called in and said, I would like to see my, I'd like to see a specialist. And they said, well, you have to be referred to by your doctor and he's not in, he's not available. I said, well, great. Can I speak to someone who works under him? They sent me to a physician's assistant mm-hmm. who then set me up with an appointment with a specialist and he gave me a digital, immediately asked me if I had cancer in my family. And then when he scoped oh. me, he said, you know, I'm sorry, there's so much blood in here. I just can't even see anything. Wow. So I need to get a colonoscopy. Got the colonoscopy and found out I had stage two rectal cancer and the doctor had 
you know, in, in, the, in the paperwork, it said, you know, that he uh, had a conservative approach to his, uh, uh, to uh, my uh, health, I guess. And uh, mm. the bottom line is he felt a tumor and thought he felt hemorrhoids. And plus, you were pretty young. He probably, maybe it just didn't even occur to him that it could be. Yeah, I was 36. Yeah. You know, I used to go in the doctor's office when I was 36, and there'd be signs on the wall saying, you remember the birth of rock and roll and fins on cars? It's time for your colonoscopy. Right, okay. For both of us, the doctor said, you look good. And someone else, in my case, it was me asking for more. And in your case, it was the uh, other practitioner said, no, let's go do that ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now... You know, you're looking at, okay, I have pain in my armpit. Mm-hmm. I have a leaking breast and we have a completely white skin. Let's look a little further. Yeah. And they found, what did they find? They found a one small suspicious area that they decided to biopsy. The biopsy came back positive. And then that led to an MRI, which, so when they saw the biopsy, they oh, it's it's beginning stages is probably either stage zero or stage one, which is the smallest, best case scenario, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then when they did the MRI, it turns out it was multi-centric and I had four tumors in my breast and it immediately leaped up to stage 2B, Mm. which actually isn't a huge leap. And luckily all the other scans kept it there. There were, I was lucky it hadn't spread beyond that. It didn't even get into the lymph nodes. So yeah. Best case scenario is that it doesn't spread. It's there, but it was, and I had small size B breasts. So it amazes me that I had a mammogram that came back saying, oh, we don't see anything suspicious. Go home and come back next year. I had four tumors in my breast. That's the part that I like to really people listen to that. (laughs) And do you recall how big the tumors were? Three of them were very small. Um, Terrible at remembering numbers. The largest one is was, I think, a, almost half an inch, which is put, which is why it was two B. Two um, A is when when everything's really small, but there's a little little bit of node action. I think, yeah, all these different things. What was the treatment plan? What did they recommend? Oh, what were the options oh, yeah. they provided you? Well. Yeah. As anyone that's gone through this nightmare, you have your um, you have your first doctor tell you what their their thought about it, and and I was at the Guthrie Center through through them, and they wanted to be very aggressive, but you have to see I was coming from nobody in my family as it had ever had can- breast cancer. I did have one uncle with colon cancer, but so I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not. I'm not supposed to get this. I'm healthy. I'm thin. I'm healthy. You know, I, I eat healthy. I work out. Yeah. Um, it's not in my family. And just side note, that's what I just said is what eighty like eighty percent of the new cancer breast cancers. That's what what's about eighty percent of the women say is that they didn't have any family history of it. Eighty percent of new breast cancers, no family history. Oh so goodness. that is not an indicator, but we all think it is. We still think it is. Eighty <laughs> percent. Of new breast cancers are women who have no family history. At least that's when I was diagnosed in 2011. Those were the numbers that I was given. And I don't think it's changed that much. Wow, that just sounds like there isn't a genetic, uh, you know, it's, it's not a result of genetics that this. Not for, every, not for what, most of environmental? the cases. Environmental? Well, well just, to, just to think about the genetics, I mean, 
they have a whole different percentage to worry about. Like of the percentage of women that have the the BRCA positive gene, the breast cancer gene, a lot, a very high percentage of them have to deal with, end up dealing with cancer. So, but that's, you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm expressing that. Somebody will probably call you and correct me, and that's fine. We'll oh, it's great. You know, you and I are just chatting. I mean, you, you were diagnosed 11, uh, eight years ago. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you're, And a lot of my f- female friends that, have, that I've met through this um, journey, as we like to call it, yeah. um, have the breast cancer gene. And it's, it's a di- completely different ballgame. I don't even really like to compare it because seeing your mother and your aunts and your sisters get breast cancer and knowing that you have the gene and knowing I don't I can't I don't want to say the percentage of likeliness that somebody with it gets cuz I can't remember but it's quite high compared to somebody that doesn't have the gene. So for me just talking about people, you know, just all women, the average of all women, they get something like 80% of new breast cancers are people that are totally blindsided with it. Oh my goodness. So it's and and just to be clear, you know, anyone who's listening, you know, neither Shara nor I are doctors. We nope. are, we are not. No. We we are two people chat who've both navigated a cancer diagnosis, and we're talking about it to bring this conversation to anyone in the world who understands English, right. who is interested, who has been affected in some way, or is just curious, because there are too many people out in the world who don't have folks to have this conversation with and are navigating this alone or have someone in their life that's going through cancer and they don't have someone to talk to about their loved one. And our hope is to not bring medical advice, but to bring our personal experiences. And thank you for saying that. Yeah. Thank you for like reminding them of that and my, and me. Um, I'm terrible at remembering a lot of numbers and percentages, so I'm not going to get it right, but I'm just going to express what I can remember, what I can recall from my experience. And just like you, I mean, I dove into the research for as soon as you get that diagnosis and you want to find out what the hell to do. Yeah. Um, for some reason, I thought I had to become a doctor and just <laughs> learn everything. And then a friend of mine, the best advice I got, and I will still forever be thankful to this person who at the time was my my supervisor at work. He said, you know, it's not your job to research everything and, and know what to do. It's your job. You get, get a second opinion, you know, hire other people yeah. for that. And I got a second opinion and it, and it gave me options. And when you have options, you feel empowered. And I was very afraid of chemo. I just intuitively felt like that was not going to be good for me. Well, it's not really good. I mean, it help, it saves people, but everybody's different. It's really hard on some people. Other people handle it a little bit better. Well, it saves people, if I could just chime in. Yes. And it's, it can be really brutal. Right. So I'm and not like advocating. that's what we have right now. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Exactly. But you wanted to not have to do chemo if you didn't have to. Right. I just kind of had this yeah, uh, intuitive I mean, sense that for me, it might not be the best way to go, but all of the doctors that I spoke with, and I did get at least, I got two breast uh, specialists and I spoke to three oncologists. They all said, yeah, you're too young. I was 44. That's not even considered young now. But at the time they said, you're young, you really need chemo. So yeah, the first doctor told me that he wanted me to have 12 infusions of three different chemicals and radiation as well as surgery. All right. 
And I did a lot of research and fought back and, and I got my second opinion and asked, well, why can't I just do this for this four infusion one? And she said, oh yeah, you're a good candidate for that. So I had four infusions of two drugs. Um, I didn't do any radiation. That was another thing that I said I didn't, I just don't want. I'm not, I was getting a mastectomy. There wasn't going to be anything there to radiate. Right. And um, so, but you know, I wasn't making the decisions by myself. I was saying to my doctor, I don't want to do this. It doesn't seem right to me. And my oncologist gave me the statistics and said, you know, you're right. You know, the statistics for you to have radiation isn't going to make a huge difference. He's like, I'm not going to I'm not going to twist your arm on that. So your oncologist made a recommendation, and then you said, you know, and including radiation, you said, well, I don't want to do radiation. And then the oncologist, you said he? I, yes. Okay, the guy. So then he looked further, and he said, okay, well, it makes sense. You, really, you don't need yeah. to if you don't want to. He, he kept pulling up this website. He did it on every one of our visits, I think. Yeah. Um, he pull up a website where, he, I guess, he punches in, well, my gender, my age, the type of cancer I had, and the staging, all that. And then he would... He would look at the the treat the different treatment plans and mm-hmm. tell me what what the percentage was for survival or whatever being becoming no evidence of disease so to speak and that was really helpful. So I recall a website that uh, my doctor pulled up and, uh, and I was married at the time and my wife she was very familiar with that website as well. Oh, which wow. talks okay. speaks about you know what stage you have and mm-hmm. you know and therefore what the standard treatment options are. Yeah, you know, very helpful and. What you're speaking to right now is the need for self-advocacy when we get diagnosed. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious about, for you, I want to say that for me, when I first got diagnosed, when it came time to pick a treatment, you know, I no, when I first got diagnosed, like within the first weeks, I just was like, how am I, I can't make this decision. I don't want to make this decision. What if I make the wrong decision? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just... Just somebody, like some doctor, please, you know, give me an answer. Yeah. And the reality is, well, I'll just say for me, after some time, you know, and I asked my doctor, you know, how much time do I have to make a decision? How much time before it moves into the next stage? And I think they said, like, you know, you want to make a decision in the next three months. And that allowed me to breathe a little bit. Like, okay, so. Wow. So different from my experience. Yeah. What did your doctor tell you? The first breast specialist told me, because I was told that I didn't have to rush into, by friends that had gone through it, I believe the advice that I was given was, you don't, don't feel like you have to rush. You know, it takes a long time to get cancer, so you can take a few weeks to decide. And I'll never forget the breast specialist at Guthrie. I won't mention any names, but um, I wanted to take a little time. I was asking questions, and he told me, well, if you're going to take a few weeks, you might as well not even bother. So here I was. I got a new diagnosis. I'm trying to figure out what the hell to do. I don't want to just do whatever the doctors tell me to do. I mean, some people do. It just wasn't, I don't trust everything like that. You know, I just, I needed to feel like I trusted what was happening. So yeah, he scared he scared the hell out of me. And then I did end up getting a second opinion, managed to squeeze one in, completely different experience, Um I was able to go with a, a less aggressive approach, which was good, was right, the right way for me to go. And it sounds like you found out that what that doctor said was not true. Was not true. Was not true. He yeah. did not have to do that. He did not have to make me feel like if I didn't do what he wanted me to do immediately that I wasn't going to live. That was essentially how I felt. You know, <laughs> I will tell you that when I, my first appointment with my 
doctor, maybe it wasn't my first appointment, but the the surgeon I spoke to about my, uh, you know, I had stage two rectal cancer. Right. And uh, when I decided that I was going to get a second opinion, go to Memorial Sloan Kettering's, I was also at Guthrie. Right. And this is the doctor I eventually ended up working with. But when I said, well, I'm going to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering and get a second opinion, I saw in his face and body language what said to me was a little bit, you know, it wasn't so easy a pill for him to swallow. And I tell people that not to criticize my doctor because he is fantastic. Last time I saw him, I was down there. I gave a friend down, a ride to the hospital because she needed it just to see her. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an emergency, but she had an appointment and no ride. I, I went to his office and I asked for him and I saw him and I threw my arms around him and hugged him. He's a great guy. He's a fantastic bedside manner. Right. Love him. And... I think he got a little uncomfortable when I said I was going to get my second opinion. And I tell people that so they understand that your doctor might get uncomfortable. Yeah. And there can be a concern like, well, I don't want to upset this person because they, right. they'll they be doing my surgery. And I had a friend call me and say, look, don't worry about the doctor. She goes, I didn't want to upset my doctor. I just wanted this thing out of me. And I made a decision that I wish I hadn't made. Yeah. And thank God she gave me that advice. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know how I would have responded, but I do know that because of that, I definitely went ahead with the second opinion. And yeah, I mean that's it, it, we need to. Yeah, it, it's granting humanity to those doctors. Like th- th- we yeah. don't, ha- you know, have an expectation that they know everything. That that they're not going to be a human being and in a moment, you know, feel threatened. You know, feel uncomfortable. It's like right. they, they're human, and they're in such a position, such such a powerful position of you know saving lives. Yeah that we can forget that these are human beings and they're doing the best they can. And cancer is so different from, you know, like when you had a strep throat as a kid, you went to the doctors, <laughs> they gave you antibiotics, They all, every doctor you went to would have said the same thing for the most part. Cancer, you can go to three different doctors, four different doctors, they're all going to tell you something a little different maybe. So yeah. you need to get as many opinions as you can can manage to get. It gives you more options and if it hurts their ego, it really shouldn't. They under, they should understand, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I didn't ask think. him if it hurt his ego, but it seemed like it did. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. you're intuitive. You probably saw that little, like, yeah. I, I wouldn't want somebody to get a second opinion on everything I did at my job, but I'm also, <laughs> you know, social yeah. media manager. <laughs> it's not like it's... <laughs> nobody's life is at stake. <laughs> but, but when we get our cars fixed, you know, we often will go to one garage and then yeah, bring another one and, and get a, get a, uh, okay. Quote, an estimate. Estimate. Yep. Yep. That's right. A quote. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the bottom line is if you get diagnosed with cancer, you know, you will need to be your own advocate Yep. over and over and over. And wouldn't you with say every decision you make? And would you say that, or agree that probably the one the number one thing you can do as your own advocate is to get a second opinion. Get a second opinion. Maybe get, get a, a third, third opinion. Yeah. 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 I went to. Uh, I was diagnosed at at a Guthrie Clinic in Sarah, Pennsylvania, and then went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and had a second opinion. So smart. The best, probably one of the best cancer groups in our area, right? Or within. Yeah, I mean, more, yeah, Sloan Kettering. Um, yeah. I didn't end up getting the surgery and treatment there, but when I had my recurrence in my liver, they again they found that at Guthrie because they were giving me my, my routine scans, mm-hmm. and I had a second opinion in Rochester and a third opinion at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Okay. Um, 
By the time I got my fourth opinion, that was for my first diagnosis, but it was the second time I went back to the doctors. Now, I don't want to get too much into this, but the first time I went with a non-traditional treatment. And after 10 months of that, it made a powerful, it had a powerful impact on the cancer, but it didn't get rid of it. Right. And so then I went back and got two more, which made four opinions before I finally went with the first doctor at Guthrie. Right. Uh, but the second time when I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, for the second diagnosis, excuse me, I had three opinions. The fourth one was at Memorial. I wasn't even going to go. And then a mutual friend of ours, his yeah. name's Brad, he was the one yeah. who looked at me and said, what are you kidding me? He got the cancer mecca, cancer hospital. The mecca of cancer hospitals is, right. is four hours away. He's like, what, do you need rides? I'll give you a ride. He's like, is that what you're worried about? I'm like, yeah. He's like, dude, come on. And I want to put that out there because people yeah. who know me and hear about my experience, they know that I I go big. I don't. I generally don't play small. I step right into it. Yeah. And I was playing small. My marriage had ended. I was uh, feeling pretty crushed about that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling strong. I was going to these appointments, asking friends to come with me. I had one friend go to the one in at Guthrie, Pennsylvania with me. I had a second friend go to the one in Rochester with me. And then it was Brad who was like, what are you talking about, man? You got stage four cancer. Like, yeah. uh, stage four cancer diagnosis, what are you doing? And because in that moment, in that time in my life, I felt small and, uh, and it was too much. And, and he yeah. lit a fire under my butt. Thank you for having a friend. And when friends, people... That's one of the best things you can do is offer to give people rides to go with them. And in yeah. your case, the first time you dealt with it, you had a partner that was there with you. Yes. And the so then way. the second time you're going through it, you're on your own. So your friends really, really helped you a lot yeah, during that time. They did. And a lot of what had them help me is I was willing to ask for it. And that was a whole process in itself. To a ask guy for asking help. for help? Yeah, the first time I was diagnosed, I wasn't asking for help. My wife was like, uh, we can't do this on our own. Mm. And I remember coming home and like, you know, we had a benefit for me. I didn't want to tell anyone we were having a benefit because that meant I was asking for help. I remember coming home and telling her, I said, uh, I told someone about the benefit. And she just beamed and I beamed because between the two of us, you know, we knew that I hadn't mentioned it to anybody. I felt like that meant that I was uh, I wasn't a man, I wasn't a strong person. All that yeah. all that all that cultural nonsense that yeah. we get trained to believe had so much uh, uh, effect on how I navigated my diagnosis and I had to move yeah. through a lot of that. I mean, how about you? What was it what's it like as a woman to get a diagnosis? I'm Asking for help, it's easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. I shouldn't say it's easy. Um I'm lucky my parents are both alive, and I had a partner at the time. My par I still have a partner, but um, we he was with me through everything. My parents were able to help me. Now, if you were to remove those three people, if I was on my own, it would have been hard to ask for help. And I would have reached out to probably friends, potentially my sister, but I mean, like definitely my sister. But again, if you don't have close friends in the city where you are, you have to reach out to... People who you're friends with, but you wouldn't, you don't want to be in that position of feel, making them feel obligated to help you. And I say that at the same time that if a friend reached out to me, I would not feel obligated. I would feel, you know, like thank you for reaching out because I know you really need help, or else you wouldn't have reached out. And I'm here for you. You know, it's yeah. weird when you're on the other side of it. But 
So I'm guessing it's harder for a woman, and but maybe not as hard because you know guys are supposed to be the fixers and the the people that don't need help, right? Yeah. Obviously the and the you know obviously that's not right, but I'm just saying it's culturally. in the culture, yeah. So yeah. I'm curious as a woman, what or you know may I ask like sure. were there things that came up for you that made your diagnosis? difficult, you know, being a woman that brought your, uh, uh, how do I want to ask this question? Um, because you're a woman, is there any, it brought you up against cultural expectations and norms and. Okay. I get what you're saying. Um, hmm. I I don't. Certainly your surgeries. Well, the surgery, well, yeah, that, that there's obviously, there's that, there's the physical, the way that it, it, Affects a female physically, certainly. What certain? Oh, yeah, is certainly something that um, that I faced. But as far as other cultural things, I what I experienced was more people that are really private versus people that are more open, and I didn't see that so much as a gender thing. Uh, there are people that when they are diagnosed, they're very private, yeah. and. Most people that are private are very proud about being private, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. Like they're, you know, like I'm private. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put my stuff out there. So there was part of me that I wanted to be private. I wanted to be that person that was proud and private, but I also wanted to find out every god freaking thing that I could find out. So the first thing I did was mm-hmm. I reached out to you, and I reached out to another friend of mine. Um, I got online. I found groups. And I was just out there um, trying to find out how how best to deal with this because there wasn't anyone in my family who had dealt with it. I had no I had no experience of cancer. I had no experience of somebody close to me going through it, which also you know nowadays I think so many people do have either have dealt with it themselves or they've dealt with somebody close to them. But I didn't. I had no idea. I had to reach out. Yeah. So I did. I mean, my desire to learn everything I could potentially learn and make the best decisions for myself was more important than being private. Can you tell me more about the pride of being private? Because as you know, I kind of live my life broadcasting whatever I'm going through. Right. God forbid you're a friend of mine who has a private life. No, I won't speak about other people, but I I tend to broadcast Uh my life. And I've never even thought of, I've never even heard of until right now, the person being proud about being private. Like what is, what is. I wonder if I'm projecting, like maybe that's just all me. It's, but it is how I've seen people have said, Oh no, I have a cancer, but I'm, I'm private. I don't want anyone to know about it. It, I'm interpreting that as a type of pride, but also I also honor that and and I understand everybody's different. Not everybody wants everybody to know. I didn't want anyone to know. So I would love for nobody to know that I, you know, that I had it, but I don't care. No. Needed your help. When you're when you're thinking to yourself, I don't want anyone to know about this. May I ask you about that? Sure. What is it that what are you keeping away from people? What are you this is easy to answer, actually. Okay. What I'm, when I don't want people to know that I had breast cancer, it's because I don't want to show up at Viva's happy hour and see my bartender or my friends, and they look at me and they think breast cancer. Okay, got it. You know what I mean? And they pro- some people probably do, 
or what they don't. But, you know, I just, I don't know. But that, that was kind of what I was coming from. You yeah. want them to speak to Shara, yeah. not speak to me. Shara who has breast cancer. I was worried that I would always, that that would be me now. That's, you know, my identity. Oh, that makes perfect sense to me. So that, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So. In some ways, it's made it easier now because I have been out there, and a lot of people that know me in our town know because I also had a benefit and all that. So now that I've gone flat and people see it, it's like, oh, well, we know we know why, but a lot of people might not know. But yeah, these are hard. These are these are. If I sound a little bit like awkward, and it's because these are these are interesting questions. I've haven't really taken a magnifying glass at any of these things until now. I feel like I'm in the therapy session. (laughs) Let me tell you then that, so one of the reasons I'm comfortable broadcasting it is because, well, in retrospect, I can see now that I was kind of wearing it like a badge, like a, uh, like street cred. Oh, wow. Like, I mean, I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with this. Okay. And I'll take your support. And it was interesting, like, you know, um, as I got older and had a family and would think about, you know, am I a strong person? I think I'm a strong person. And then I got diagnosed and I'm like, yeah, I'm a tough son of a gun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. I, and I, and I, and so when people knew what I was dealing with, I wasn't sharing it with like, yeah, look what I'm dealing with. But it was, there was a bit of ego there, like ego in the sense that it was kind of lifting me up and, and having me, you know, gave me the experience of being a, somebody who'd navigated something difficult and was working hard Hmm. and struggling, you know, like whenever I, you know, you know, get paid to like, you know, swing a hammer or a shovel, you know, and I was just working hard and busting my back. I'd feel good about the hard work that I did. And I had a similar experience when I went through the diagnosis. Interesting. I mean, I will tell you when I, when it came to asking for help, yeah, I, <laughs> that was not so easy to do, and and you know, in retrospect, I can see you know the, you know, I, I get that it took real courage to ask for help because I was so Isn't afraid. Isn't that interesting? Like here, you feel like kind of like tough, badass dealing with this cancer diagnosis, and yet the hardest thing, the thing that took the most courage, was asking for help. Isn't that weird how that works. Yeah, to like reveal my, you know, my soft underbelly. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh. So I, I love I, lo- I so appreciate you, uh, you know, answering those questions and seeing what that's like because it's yeah. it, you know you and I went into it very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, at least you know from the initial from the onset when you're like I want to keep this private, but yeah. clearly it's not going to serve it's me if I happen. do. Also, we haven't even mentioned a really interesting part of. I think it's interesting. You had your second um, diagnosis, your recurrence yeah. that happened in your liver. Just it came out like just weeks before my diagnosis, my first diagnosis. Your diagnosis was September or November twenty eighth. November twenty eighth is when I was diagnosed. Yeah, September first was when, yeah, they told me that I had a spot in my liver, and they were pretty certain it was cancer. They were, and I was like, "You sure it's not a mistake?" It's the and they called thing. me back. Oh my so gosh, so scary. And then I had my surgery. I think it was October twenty eighth, right of two thousand and eleven. Right. So you you and were just yeah. You were diagnosed a month later. Yep. And we share an oncologist. Yeah. And actually, probably one of my favorite things to share is that, okay, so I had four infusions. Um, I believe you were there for the either third or fourth infusion, but 
you were a few chairs down from me. We weren't sitting near each other. And I just remember, oh, this is fun, you know. Bert's going to be in here the same time I am. We've been chatting, right? Like we knew each other. We knew each other. You'd been helping me. You'd come over. You were trying to give me advice and help me kind of navigate the nightmare. The terrifying room. Absolutely. Yeah. First time you walk in there, it's just like, oh. Oh, God. Yeah, my first visit there is a whole other story. But So this wasn't my first visit, but I just, so I knew the nurses, but I also couldn't find them that day because they were all hanging out with the cute Italian guy. (laughs) Italian? (laughs) Aren't you Italian? No, I'm Russian. Really? Half Russian and half <laughs> Irish. You look Italian. Probably because when I was 18 months old, I climbed up on a play structure about six feet high. And in the middle, there was a hole and a, and a fire pole you could slide down. Mm-hmm. And my brother was filling a coffee can with sand. And I looked down and face planted oh, on the coffee can and broke the bridge of my look nose. <laughs> face planting. <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> I broke. <laughs> <laughs> the bridge of my nose, and okay. so it stopped the arch, the the, the subtle Jewish yeah, arch do. that my brother and sister have. Uh huh. I don't have that. No, you have the Italian arch now. I guess maybe I, do. I don't know. Oh wow! Well, that's funny. So well, the Russian, oh, the Russian guy, the doctor, the nurses. Were well, you're, to? if you're Jew- Jewish Italian, there's a lot of similarities and looks. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, that. Well, maybe not always, but not the Guido <laughs> Italian, the other type of Italian. There's different types. <laughs> You're Italian, you can say these I can things. say that. I have some Italians in my family that fit the Guido, and then I have the other, more of the quiet, yeah. like my dad. He's kind of like the quiet, whatever you want to, so old school. I was the Russian-Irish guy. That's funny. In in the chemo ward. So, yeah, so anyway, you were flirting with the nurses, making them all laugh, and that's, that's great. I mean, it was, you, had, you used your humor a lot. I know, you that got you through. And but it was really funny. I'm like, nurse, nurse. Oh, okay, they're over there. <laughs> and I always tell everybody that because I think it's funny. I'm not actually making it up. It actually was actually true. I wouldn't know. I was just getting my treatment, and the nurses were very. And helpful. they were all at your beck and call. <laughs> well, I will elaborate about that. It was so difficult being a man and being cared for by all these people. Hmm. be they men or women. I mean, it's actually easier, a little easier being cared for by a woman than being cared for by a man. I agree. You know, cause the, the, it's a threat to my masculinity when a man is helping me. A subtle threat to my masculinity. I've such different experiences. Yeah. And, I, just don't, I just don't feel as comfortable with a man taking care of me because hmm. they're a man. Yeah. And you don't feel as comfortable with them because you're a man and they're a man. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, and, and, and then have the nurses take care of me. So what I noticed, actually told them eventually, I said, I realize I'm being flirtatious with you because I feel so emasculated oh. being cared for by you that I'm trying to to balance the equation. I'm trying to bring my masculinity into this. And they just laughed at me. They were like, it's, you were I, 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 what's so funny? They go, because you're telling us this. That was actually really, that's... That's pretty. Then that kind of just made it real, also, and you could relax into it. Like here, I'm, I'm in a vulnerable position. This is how I'm dealing with it. I'm struggling. Yeah, you know, they would they say mind. something, and I would make an innuendo. It didn't seem like they minded. Make some sexual innuendo out of it, and they would laugh or like. You know, I mean, within a reason. I wasn't being, you know, disgusting, but you know, just you know, making little comments. And I noticed I was doing that, and it's be- again, it's because it's okay. it's so hard to be cared for by others and to have like. You know, yeah. So, like the nurses would say, you know, 
how, what's your pain level? And I would kind of bring it down a few notches. And I remember one time my wife, the doctor said, or the nurse said, what's your pain level? And I said, well, it's not bad at all. It's like maybe a three. And my wife says, you're on 10 milligrams of morphine a day or whatever that I was on. You know, she's like, your pain is really high. You just have to be, I go, is that, oh, why should I tell you that? And then there's like, yeah, that would help, sir. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to admit to how much I was struggling. And I slowly learned over time, the more honest I'm willing to be with them, the more they can help me with the, with, with the pain, with the nausea, with all the side effects. And it was, it's, it's, you know, some of us, we just want to, you know, yeah. be stoic. You know, I'm certainly not a stoic person, but there is a, 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 a part of me that wants to at least show that I'm strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that can get in the way of the treatment you receive. Right. And the medications that, that deal with your pain, your nausea, or that just, I don't know about you, but for me, like the chemo, like the toxic feeling that I got oh God. from being on chemo, I felt like it was, I felt like I was on, you know, dealing with alcohol poisoning. Every time I got chemotherapy, you didn't get chemotherapy, right? Yes, I ended up getting four. I it had four was treatments. chemotherapy. Yes, I had chemotherapy. Yep. So let's get back to that. You spoke to the doctor mm-hmm. and said, "I don't want radiation, but I will take I, the, the four treatment chemotherapy as opposed to the as opposed to what the, the they wanted 12? me to do twelve. The twelve, yeah. Um, there's there's a couple of different typical breast cancer regimens cocktails, and there's uh, the one that is twelve treatments. Um, given usually every two weeks three different you get you get one cocktail for the first half and you get the other two mixed for the second half and so i just went with i wanted i wanted it to be less aggressive um and it ended up being the right because my body took it so hard i can't even imagine how i would have gotten through more but uh so i did four infusions each infusion was two um, at, and I had three weeks in between, so I was actually a, a, actually able to go back to work a little bit in there because I was on you know part time. Oh, lucky you! Yeah, a little bit of disability, so I would able like had like a week and a half off. I'd go back to work for a week and a half, then I that would be three weeks, right? And then I'd have another infusion. And oh God, it was not. I for me, it was a really awful experience. Um, and I see other people they go through chemo, women with breast cancer. They, they work through it. They go to work. I don't know how it makes... I liked to be tough. Like when I was younger, I was you know, into yeah. sports, kind of a tomboy. And so it is... I'm not happy with having had such a hard time with it. The, so you would take a week and a half off from work each yeah. time you got a treatment? Yeah. And you had four of those treatments? I had four treatments. Yeah, I I took... I had six months of treatment and oh, I, I took six months off. I mean, I, I mean, I was already on full disability anyway, but uh, from the cancer. But was this the first time or the second time? The first time. The second time, I didn't have a job. Okay. <laughs> I was right. jobless. Well, after going through all that, do you think that that cancer is the reason why you lost your job? No. Okay. No. That's good. It was not. At least that's good. I don't know if that's good or bad. Either way, it sucks to lose a job, but. Yes, so I didn't yeah. have a job when I was diagnosed a second time, and okay. so I didn't have any job, any work to miss. That's, but that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother. I mean, you would say it's less stressful, but maybe it's more stressful. I mean, you know, that's just just such a financial burden of having a cancer diagnosis in this country. I'd like to add. Huh. Yeah, not. I mean, having a child, and 
you know, I knew his mom would have him full time if she had to. You know, she was trying doing her best to work and uh, pay okay. her bills, and so was I. I was on unemployment when I got diagnosed, and then went back on a disability because I had been on disability, uh, social security disability from the first diagnosis, and mm-hmm. then when I got a job, that obviously went away, okay. and then I received unemployment, and then when I was diagnosed stage four. They put me back on disability, and so I did have some income, but okay. it was it wasn't enough. Um, but yeah, you're saying that the uh, the treatments made you really sick. You had four of them that made you really sick for a week and a half. Oh yeah, each time ten days. Oh yeah, and then after those four treatments, you then had your surgery. I had the surgery ahead of time. Uh, you had it first. Yeah, um, they were. I think that might have just been the time when they were starting to make it a more regular practice to do chemo first. But at that time, they gave me the choice. What's it called? Neurotherapy. It's called. There's a word for it with starts and then when you have the chemo first and then the surgery. But of course, probably pretty typical. I said no. I want the cancer. I want to get it out get it out of me. That's a common response. It's a common response. Get it out. Um, but I do know people that, you know, because now sometimes they don't have the choice and they have to do the chemo first. And it does sometimes shrink the tumor and makes the surgery more successful. So, Yep. Yeah, they're finding... Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, with with me, they, with the first diagnosis, they did, uh, I think it was five weeks of chemotherapy along, you know, in tandem with radiation, okay. which was brutal. And uh, it was to reduce the size of the tumor. Yeah. yeah. And then they go into the surgery. But they gave you the option and they removed the breast or what's inside the breast. Oh, for me. Um, yeah. So in yeah that January 2012, I had a mastectomy. Um, and then I had the f- immediately s- followed by the first stage of reconstruction. So they put a tissue expander in. Um, so that it just kind of keeps the breast form. And then, you know, typically in a few months, you'll do an exchange surgery, which puts the final implant in there. I chose to go with implants, which I have since taken out. So I'm not, I do not have implants at this point in time, but I did choose to go with implants at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't, my initial reaction was, I don't want to have a foreign thing in my body, but I looked mm-hmm. at all the options. And in 2011, there really wasn't a whole lot of what they call flap surgeries. There was the one where the most common one was where they would take some muscle and um, tissue and fat cells from your gut area, belly area. Mm-hmm. A lot of women liked that. And, you, you know, we always joke, oh, if only I could move this from here to there, well, guess some people can. So, so they do that with some surgeries. They do that. And so some women ha- have done that and they have breasts formed from... The, the tissue from their belly. Um, I didn't have enough. So it's not a foreign... No, it's nice. It's, it's, your, it's your... You don't have anything foreign in there. You have breasts that are warm, that feel that your actual you know tissue, whereas implants are cold because you have like this cold silicone sphere inside you. So yeah, and they're heavy and they move around. So I, I imagine that for, for women that it works. I just didn't... Even if I did have enough... Um, fat in my stomach, I would not have done that. Um, the other one that I could have done is the one where they take things, they take some of your muscle out of your, they use some of your lap muscle, they actually remove some of your lap muscle. Oh, wow. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and I could, I have plenty of extra tissue in my thighs and in my butt, um, but they, there wasn't that many, 
there wasn't a lot of surgeons that had a lot of experience with it. Uh, I would have really had to go to John Hopkins to go to somebody that would know what they were doing and not screw me up. And I didn't want, I just didn't want to deal with all that. Okay, yeah. Because I didn't want to travel down there. The only flap surgery that seemed like it. And I also, I I have a problem with the whole Frankenstein feeling of it. Like, okay, you're going to chop off my butt, a little area in my butt. Fatty tissue. They have. Not Correct muscle, me if right? I'm wrong, but they have to take muscle too. They have oh, to take okay. some muscle in order to get to, because you got nothing here. If you just have fat, they have to have muscle. Somebody may come in and tell you I'm wrong, but yeah, they. And I've seen the women that have had it. It's 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 grueling. You know, okay. there's a lot. Things can go wrong. You end up. You could end up with multiple surgeries. There's a lot of healing time. So yeah, I I wish that being flat was more of an option from the beginning. I wish that. You know, part of that was it wasn't really presented to me as an option. You know, you could just be flat. It's okay. You're not going to look like a man. You can choose to be flat and not go through all these extra surgeries and be comfortable in your body and just learn to fashion, work it so that you're comfortable. That was never an option presented to me. And even though I did know of some women that went flat, I they they always, they never really showed it in a way that, that I thought I could live with. They always kind of looked like a man with their um, flat. Mm. Um, which I get now they're trying to show, get awareness for it. So, so I just yeah. couldn't put, wrap my brain around it. I went with implants and then they made me sick. So now you went with an yeah. implant, right? I went with, yes, thank you. I went with an implant on my right, my right breast is the one that got cancer. So I had an implant and then, um, well, now we're talking like 2013, Cancer experiences behind me. My hair is growing back. Yeah. You know, I'm starting to get a little bit more in shape because all those drugs made me gain weight. And I thought I was going to get skinny when I had cancer. I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to lose my breasts. I'm going to lose my hair, but maybe I'll at least lose some weight. Then I found out that actually the stuff that they give women really tend most women gain between 15 to 20 pounds. Oh my! Yeah, um, I don't know why. I think it's I think it's the steroids. Okay, they pump you full of steroids and. Um, Benadryl and just it's the combination. Most women get very round and pink and fat. And then people say, oh, you look good because they expect that you're going to look like a skeleton. <sighs> right. But you don't. Yeah. You don't look good or feel good. <laughs> you just don't look like a skeleton. So, yeah. Where was I? Oh, okay, yeah. So now I remember where I was. Everything was growing back. My hair was growing back. I was losing weight. It's feeling good. I'm going in for another routine mammogram. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I wanted an MRI because I wanted them to check the implant. It had been three years, and I wanted to, you know, they do an MRI every three years to make sure that the implant doesn't have a rupture or anything. Wow. Yeah. So you mean if a woman just simply gets cosmetic surgery, breast implants, she has to have an MRI every three years? At that time, that's what the protocol was. In 2013, was. that's what the protocol yeah. was. Yeah, so I had mine put in, and then... Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I pushed for it because they wanted me to wait a little longer. I'm like, I, I wanted to push for it. And so when they when they checked the implant, they were also checking the left breast that I still had. And the um, unfortunately, the scans of the, less, the left breast appeared to have multicentric cancer, which is what I had before. Now, remember, I had really, I had um, hard breasts. I had dense, dense breasts. In fact, once you have a cancer uh, diagnosis, you're you're naked, you know, in front of a lot of doctors and nurses, and they're all touching your boobs. And I, I, at least three or four people, upon touching my breasts, said, "Wow, you have hard, 
wow, these are hard. You have hard breasts. It was happening all the time. So that tells me they're harder than what they expect. They were, they're they very dense, which I was Three fine. people in one sitting? No, 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 no. I mean, over the different, uh, uh, different, you know. I once had four radiation staff all bent over with my pants dropped to my knees and they were looking at my testicles to see the boils on my testicles from the radiation that were the size of like my thumbnail with like four and five whiteheads on each boil. Ouch. Yeah, I was walking like I was, um, um, what do you call it? A cowboy that's um, bow-legged. Yeah, I had to Ouch. walk. Yeah, so they finally put um, this um, material that could stick to the area of my testicles that had the, the boils on them that it wouldn't peel off skin Mm -hmm. it's very Mm -hmm. expensive adhesive material i mean there's so many things like that that happen that people don't even know and you know oh you had cancer and you you had chemo and you had radiation there's all these other little things like that that are just nightmarish Um, awful right that was very painful then they well they started the radiation from the back of my body so i eventually had a sunburn on my anus essentially every single you know i have to and then they would sunburn the sunburn, and then sunburn the sunburn sunburn, and then you're like, you know, the anus is a uh, rather active part of the body. Every time I would uh, go to the bathroom, God damn it, ouch! It was so painful. And there, did you have to have painkillers just to kind of get through? Yeah, there that? were topical painkillers. God. And morphine, and uh, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, and at one point there were four nurses all bent down just looking at my business with my pants to my knees and they're all just investigating my testicles. And That's a moment in was, your life when you're like, really? Really? Did this, does this really need to be happening right they, now? They all got really interested in these huge boils. And so I, four women bent down, really interested in my testicles. And there was a moment when I stood there, I'm like, is this actually happening? I can't. Like, can somebody take a picture I'm of this? I'm trying this is not insane. to laugh. Actually, but... <laughs> no, please laugh. It's like, actually, don't take a picture because I don't want a picture of this, but I, part of me wants a picture because this is this is insane. Yeah, I was like the poster child for side effects. So they got really interested in my side effects. Oh, oh yeah, they were interested <laughs> in your side effects. Oh, my God. Oh, oh yes. Yes, so that's one of the things about, about certain diagnoses is oh, like God. you have medical staff like... Your personal private parts oh, yeah. of your body. You get used to being poked and prodded and squeezed yeah. and told that your boobs are hard. And people putting their hands on your breasts. Yeah, it, it was just normal. It, you know, you, you you didn't you don't end up being shy anymore. That's for sure. So, but yeah. So I guess going back to the left breast, um, and the scan <sighs> of the left breast, left breast. Um, that was a really difficult time in that they couldn't tell me for sure it was cancer, but they all thought it was. Um, I went to several doctors and they said, of course, they're not going to say yes, it is, because if they're wrong, then, you know, they said it was. And then I, I guess I could be mad enough. To, I, I don't know if you can sue a doctor for telling you that or not, but they leave enough. They say, we're 70% sure it is. And we think you're better off if you do have another mastectomy to be knowing your case history. Everything they said was very logical. So, of course, we did a biopsy. And the biopsy came back negative. So I was like, yay, it's not. But um, that's when I learned that a biopsy that comes back negative is not a 100%. Right. A biopsy that comes back positive is 100% because it obviously caught something. But if it doesn't get something, it means it could miss. It could have missed it. It could have missed something. That little, yes, exactly. So 
so then I had to decide, okay, do I have another one? Oh. You know, I really didn't want to lose my one my one breast that I had left. At the time, I had implant on this side, so, you know, I wasn't worried about some symmetry because I was, I was symmetrical. But I went ahead and I did it, and I'm glad I did it now. But at the time when they called me, you know, I'm in bandaged up, sitting in my backyard. I get a phone call from the surgeon saying, okay, we've got good news. It wasn't cancer. And I said, I said, thank I was obviously very grateful that I didn't have cancer and didn't have to go through everything yeah. again. And I said, was there any precancerous cells in there or anything? Nope. Not even precancerous cells. So I hung up the phone and cried. Like I should have been so happy. Oh, I don't have cancer. But I I was devastated that I had a perfectly healthy breast removed. Yeah. And I never, I did, I did call my, the, that breast surgeon. I, I asked her, you know, what was it then? What you saw, you thought was cancer. What was it? Can you tell me what it was? And they just never had an answer for me. So I'm over it now, but it took a while. So if I'm hearing this correctly, I mean, first I can, it sounds like you were devastated. You took a completely healthy breast mm -hmm. off my body. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Which actually I do understand that some women choose to do that prophylactically. Yeah when they have the breast cancer gene, and that's completely understandable from that whole other ball game. Yeah, but yeah. So, but the other piece of it is that uh, you were devastated that a completely healthy breast was gone. Mm -hmm. But was there any way for them to be 100% certain that it was cancer-free without removing it? I think, in hindsight, I, if I had to do it over again, I would go up to upstate, and I would get a second opinion. I got lazy that time, and I didn't. I didn't, well, I did have, I had the breast specialist give me her opinion, and I went to my oncologist, and he gave me his opinion. And um, I feel like there was one other person in the area that I spoke to, maybe the radiologist, mm -hmm. somebody that reads, and there, it was of their all of their opinion, but what I didn't do so I didn't leave our little town of Ithaca and go up where there's a big cancer team in upstate at Syracuse or maybe perhaps Rochester, anywhere, even Guthrie. Yeah. They Down in, in Sarah, they've got a nice big, they've got better equipment. And I really, it would be, so maybe they could have, maybe with the right equipment, newer equipment and more experienced doctors, they might have been able to say, let's just watch this. Doesn't, we're not sure, who knows? Now, you're saying you got lazy. I got lazy. So, can I ask you about that? Sure. All right. So, I get you're trying to communicate something that, you know, you decided to not go and do it. But I'm wondering, like, what does lazy mean okay. in this, in this so case? Okay. So, lazy in this case means that I had gone through 2012 was a whole year of dealing with this shit. And, and a little bit into 2013, and I was done. I wanted to put it behind me. I had a cancer experience. I put it behind me, moving on, done. Right. And so having to deal with this again, there was another component. The, my car wasn't working. I, I, had, I had a car that needed a new engine, so I basically I didn't have a car. So I didn't have a convenient way to just zip up there. Mm -hmm. Um. But I got lazy, I guess, because I just, I didn't want to have to deal with everything again. <laughs> and that's just the opposite. I should have been the opposite. I've been like, well, let's, we know how to do this. We know you get a second opinion. Um, we can find somebody to help me get up to this other hospital. But it was, it was less convenient 
because I didn't have a car. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like you were looking at yet another mountain to climb. Yeah. And you had been so tired from the first time. Yeah, I was so happy it was over. And you were so relieved from it being over. Yeah. And when it came time to look at the second breast, a part of you was just like, you know, I don't have a vehicle. I've been through so much, and now I'm going to, you know, to get a second opinion. It doesn't sound like lazy. It sounds like in the moment and where you were in that time, you were just done. You were just like, I don't want to do any more of this. I didn't. I didn't want to lose my breast either. But I didn't have, for some reason, didn't have faith that... I would be told anything different. And that was a mistake. I should have, really should have went up and got at least one other hospital team. If they didn't say anything different, I wouldn't be wondering if I should have done that now because that would at least be, okay, nobody could tell me I had to take this gamble and this is what I did. So looking back, you would have gotten a second opinion. Oh, yeah. So bring it back to when I got my second opinion Yes. And Brad said to me, are you going to go to Sloan Kettering? And I said, dude, I, that's such a drive. Right. Like I'd said that I, I was in the same place you were. So you're saying it's lazy. And I'm just like, I just got more respect for you than that. I'm not going to call it that. I'm not going to. Right. You weren't being lazy. I, I In the moment, I just had someone who got behind me and said, no way, dude, let's go. I'll drive you there. And if you had had someone who was there and said, look, I'll, or somebody who, yeah. you know, maybe someone thought it, but they looked at you and they were just like, um, I don't want to mess with this girl. She'd been through a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever it was, all I'm saying is, yeah. I made the same decision you made. I just happened to have someone kick me. Thank like, you. Yeah. Thank you. You're right. If You know, if there was somebody that said, nope, we should go up there. Let's do it. I'll drive you. I would have went. You're right. It would have made it a lot easier. And and I and I bring that up because I want people to really get like this is there are so many decisions we make when we get diagnosed, when we're being treated, after it's over, what kind of post treatment stuff we're gonna get. There's so many decisions and there's times we get tired. Yeah. And we get heartbroken and we feel defeated and we don't want to keep going. Yeah. And that's part of being a human being. Yeah. And, and we're here to let people know about our victories yeah. and about the insanity and the funny parts and to let them know like yeah. the mistakes that we made. Yeah. And I, and I, I guess I, I would be surprised if there was anyone that said that they went through this kind of experience and didn't have at least one thing, maybe we wouldn't call it a mistake, but at least one thing that they could have done better with in hindsight. But none of us have hindsight when we're going through it for the first time all we have is other people that have gone through similar and you just and life circumstances are showing up yep like excuse me life circumstances Mm -hmm. I actually don't have time for circumstances right now I'm already in a circumstance I have a huge circumstance I don't have time for automobile problems and whatever else my circumstances can't have more circumstances exactly this is it we're done and life looks at you and says oh this is life welcome Yep, this is what you get. This is what you get to do. This is exactly what you get, you know. And I feel like a lot of us, before we get diagnosed, I mean, well, God bless some people who have already been through, you know, trauma in so many other ways. But you know, right. getting diagnosed, it was just like such a wake up call. Like you know, when I got diagnosed, it was like you know the the next day, my wife goes to work, and I'm like, 
on the couch, laying on my back, crying my eyes out, screaming like, no, like I am not one of these people. I'm a normal person. I'm a healthy person. I'm a 36 year old guy. I'm not someone who gets cancer. Right. And then I realized, you know, weeks later, days later, whatever it was, well, actually you're a human being and human beings get cancer. And unfortunately, unfortunately they do. Yeah. And it's simply part of being a human. And there's something wonderful in one way of being a person who doesn't have exposure to that, who doesn't look at life and say, cancer is part of life, you know? And, and right. that, was, that was you, that was me. At one point, it was off in the distance. It was it like was someone else's thing. It yeah. was a family member. It was a relative. It was a friend. It was yeah. a coworker, but it wasn't us. No. And then everything. Young, healthy. Why? You know. Right? So, didn't didn't you tell yeah. your doctors this must be a mistake? Yes. Yes. When they got when I got the phone call, um, and she said that it's that it is cancer, I just didn't even believe her. I'm like, yeah. are you sure? <laughs> no, there must be some mistake. Are you, you know, and I'm, I, I'm sure she gets that a lot now, but at the time I was just total blindside. Like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. There's no way I'm healthy. I didn't feel sick. Right. Um, me either. I didn't have you know? any other than passing blood, but there was no like, yeah. Yeah. There so was no, there was no feeling sick. There was no quote feeling yeah. sick. Yeah. Maybe, People would yeah. say you're sick. Yeah, I'd say I'm not sick. Well, you have cancer, but, but like my body has a thing going on. Yeah, that's really not healthy. But As I'm like, not sick. You know, you're not. I wasn't tired. It wasn't any more. Yeah. You know, it wasn't feeling like like you might think that if you have a tumor in you that you're that you're getting that something else is happening. Your body must be fighting it in some way. Your immunity probably is down, but it hadn't gotten to that point for me. It didn't seem. Yeah. But yeah. So they removed. I'm curious about breast removal if i could ask a question sure thank you so much for letting me <laughs> ask because i've never thought about this when they remove your breast they put in the what's the material to stretch the skin out so the implant can fit so it doesn't shrink it's, a, it's called a tissue expander it looks just like an implant but it's okay. a temporary implant tissue expander now does the nipple remain no that's kind um, of part of the organ, so they remove it? Some women can have what's called nipple-sparing mastectomies uh, okay. if they're lucky enough and if they maybe just have one tumor and it's off to the side, nowhere near the nipple, they could have a... Well, in that case, they'd probably have a lumpectomy, which only just takes... A lumpectomy is just where they take out the tumor, but so you have you're still your breast, but it has a dent in it. Okay. Um, but I, most women get you know they don't have any breasts so you end up with okay. yeah you end up with just kind of like a line like the scar that goes across and yeah everything's gone sensation's gone that's the other thing too so you get it you get the imp- if you get the lumpectomy or if you get the oh the lumpectomy the mastectomy is it mastectomy yeah the mastectomy mastectomy and they remove the nipple and that's, all the that's the full they remove all of your tissue all of the breast tissue, um, yeah, and the nipple. Yeah. yeah, but the colostomy that I got when I had, cause I had uh, stage two rectal cancer, for some people with colorectal cancer, they can, they can cut out, they can give the person like a temporary colostomy mm-hmm. and cut out the, uh, part of the large intestine. Oh, wow, okay. And then 
they connect the two parts, and then once it's healed, they take they they, they reverse the colostomy, and then you get your body back. Nice. But I had more of the mastectomy kind of uh, gotcha <laughs> surgery where they removed my large intestine from about two thirds of the way all the way down and took everything out. Okay. And stitched me up. So there's it's interesting. I never knew that 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 there were the different levels of um, of colon cancer treatment like that. It's I guess it's probably with anything like yeah. Some people have the mastectomy of yeah. <laughs> the mastectomy of of of, so, of colon surgery. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Yeah, so you can have uh you can have like me have just the all of the so so my the tumor that was in my rectum mm-hmm. was also uh, grown into the sphincter muscle. Okay. So the doc did a sigmoidoscopy where they have this a short scope up into my rectum and when they it, turned the camera down, had it face down towards the sphincter muscle and asked me to squeeze my sphincter muscle. And you, I actually saw the tumor, which was actually disturbing to have seen it, but it was not a pretty sight. Oh, okay. It's purple and red and I, I don't even remember green, yellow. Maybe I made all that up, but all I know is it. I could see it. And wow. when he told me to tighten the sphincter muscle, you could see on the camera that the tumor got pulled down when I tightened the sphincter muscle. And he said, yep, see, that is attached to the sphincter muscle, so the sphincter has to go. Ugh. That was the doctor I went to in New York. I didn't do the surgery with him, but I used Dr. Cager down in uh, Guthrie. He was fantastic. But that is definitely something where you'd want a second opinion because that's yes. that's major structural. I wanted to change. save my ass. Yes, <laughs> which is why I did the alternative treatment for ten months, getting my blood work and my scans every few months. And when that didn't work, I was like, "Okay, looks like we're going with traditional treatment." Well, it didn't I mean it had a positive effect, it, and it made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, but ultimately it didn't remove the tumor right. for certain reasons that maybe I'll get into some point on this podcast or in one of the uh, conversations. But my point being, other folks, they can have a section of the large intestine removed and get restitched and then have no colostomy. Other folks, they get a colostomy and they'll actually be, but the anus and the rectum can remain. Mm-hmm. I met a gal who had a, a permanent colostomy and then she had like her anus and some of the colon that went up and it would just stop and it produced some mucus and that she'd have to kind of wipe away every once in a while but she still had an anus and i just i don't i don't remember but i thought to myself like like why what does it provide may and perhaps it just provides like you're intact Mm. it's your body, you know, and you have some of your body and you want to keep it. I mean, I don't know if there's benefits to to having it, but there's a variety of different kind of surgeries you can get if you have you know, colorectal yeah. cancer. It seems sort of a maybe a unanimous thing that the more of your actual body that you can keep is, seems to be the better, you know, yeah. like if you, if you can spare your nipple or spare your anus yeah why wouldn't you why wouldn't you it. but it was it's was not an option for me here's was, something funny yeah. i uh, i have no anus and occasionally i'll have like phantom gas sensations where i'll feel like i have to pass gas and i and i'll you know my body will adjust the way that our bodies do if we're sitting or walking and i'll go oh i don't have to worry about that <laughs> there's nothing coming out there <laughs> 
because you hear about people who have like they lose a limb and they have like a fan, like a, have an itch on where their on their thumb where their thumb doesn't exist anymore. I've heard of that, and I actually can say that I sometimes feel like, you know, that there's something that I have to itch my nipple and it's not there. So oh so I gosh. definitely have that. It's it's not. I don't have it very often. Some women are more haunted by it, drives them crazy. But I'm very lucky for the most part. I don't feel anything. Wow. Yeah. That that's a whole entire subject. Yeah. So when you got the call that after the second breast was removed and the pathology was done, there was no cancer tissue in it at all. Right. Not even precancerous cells. And how did you respond? I just sat there and cried. I mean, and, and I felt, part of me felt like, well, I should be happy there was no cancer. And I certainly was happy that there was no cancer, but I just couldn't. I was just so upset that I ended up losing because they convinced me that oh it must be cancer let's let's yeah. do this, um, and uh, yeah no I just I just felt defeated, and it was like those that kind of sob like I'm just like you know ugh, and just mourning like the one breast that I had left because it's a huge difference. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's certain things that breasts add to a woman's life, such as sexual sensation, to be very blunt, yeah. um, and. And well, let's be blunt. Because let's be blunt. And, and it was nice having one because, you know, the other one that was gone is completely numb. There's nothing there. There's no nipple. There's no sensation. I can, you can feel the skin, but mostly you've got like this hard silicone bubble in there um, trying to make it look like you have a breast, at least in your clothes, which is, you know, nice. But that's it. it it's mostly uncomfortable. It does nothing, you know. I don't even think it yeah. really. I don't think it really even helps your partner if you have a partner that enjoys breasts. Yeah, and it. I don't believe that that's really a good substitute either because they feel different and they just there's. You're not going to stimulate anything. There's nothing there. So. So then they were both gone, and yeah, yeah that sucked. And they're both gone. And I so miss you, my nipples. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> but actually, I've kind of forgotten about it. At first, when you first lose it, it's kind of like, you know, you remember and you miss them. And now it's been so long that I've, I actually am more comfortable now than I was with breasts. Having a flat chest, you guys are lucky. Having a <laughs> flat right? chest, it's so comfortable. It's great. There's nothing in the way. Boobs get in the way Mine sometimes. were small, too, and they didn't really get in the way that much. But, but it's so, a different experience now. It's a different experience. You got something hanging on your chest, so... Yeah, so you got a couple implants. I did. At you got that the point, second implant. Yep, I did the same. I went through the whole same route, you know, you know, tissue expander exchange. Now I have two. I have two uh, implants. I guess that must have been around 2014. So the one had already been in there for a couple of years, and, the, and mm-hmm. whatever. But I started. Uh, are we moving to the breast implant illness segment of this? Sounds like we are. You got your second, you received the second implant. Yeah, and I was kind of fine for a couple of years, it seemed like. Um, I don't know. I had symptoms. I had symptoms that I was connecting to having had chemo and symptoms that could also be because chemo pushed me immediately into menopause. Um, I was 44. I love it when, Mm. I'm being sarcastic when I say I love it, when people tell me, Oh, you were 44. You were going through it anyway, but I I actually wasn't. You weren't. I had some I had some perimenopause 
very beginning symptoms, but I was very regular. Nothing was really feeling like it was changing quite yet. So I went from being very regular once a month period to stop. Yeah. Actually, this I'll take a little sidebar here because this is a very interesting story. Yeah. The first infusion that I had, I started bleeding like you wouldn't believe. And it didn't seem like it was my period. From the first chemotherapy infusion. From the first infusion, one of the symptoms was that I had to be hospitalized because I was bleeding so much. Really? From, yeah. That we thought it was my period. But then it was bright red and they're like, this is maybe your bladder. So a really, there's a really uh, rare side effect of chemotherapy and it can, it can affect your bladder. So they thought my bladder was bleeding. And so I'm in the hospital and, you know, I'm going to the bathroom, there's tons of blood and I'm kind of, I'm checking myself. I'm, I'm like trying to figure out what's coming, coming, you know, what's going on. And I'm pretty sure it's, it's coming from my vagina, like uh, that it's my period, that it's not like coming from where you go to the bathroom. It's yeah. not coming from... I wish I knew the name of my anatomy. So let's just say it's coming from... It's not coming from your bladder. You're it's not, not coming it's from not, the pee hole. Yeah. Uh, but my doctors, they looked at, they were going to give me a pill. By the way, I didn't even know what my rectum was before I had rectal <laughs> cancer. I used to say rectum, damn near killed him. I thought that was funny, but I didn't know what the hell I was actually talking about. Like We don't, we don't learn our it's anatomy. It's not like we can see that. So, <laughs> God. So, yeah. So anyway, so I, I was looking, I'm like, mm, no, that that's... That's usually where the blood comes out. So it's, you know, it's not right. coming out of where I urinate. So they were ready to hand me a pill to stop my bladder from bleeding. And they, hand, they, they had this bright red pill that they put it right in front of my face with a glass of water. And I said, you know, I just really don't think I'm bleeding from my bladder. Can you check again? They checked again and they were like, well, gosh darn, you're right. Again, another example of constantly advocating yes. for yourself. Yes. People so often tell me they didn't speak up. They didn't say something. And you spoke up again. Yeah. And they said, oh, look thing. at that. Wait a second. You're right. You don't need to take the red pill. And what was that going to... It was supposed to stop my bladder from bleeding. What would it have done? I'm just so glad I didn't take that. So what was going on? Well, it, it seems I never so, had my period again. So it seems that my body just had the rest of my periods all at once. I'm kind of being funny, but that's what it feels like. Like it wasn't shedding lining though. It was like actual just blood blood. Like I had I so? just had the worst period of my life. Wow. So and From your first infusion. Yeah, it just made me bleed out. <laughs> I mean, kind of exaggerate, but it was really and it was bright red. It really didn't look like your norm the normal color um look let's <laughs> if you're comfortable i'm comfortable let's just put it out there because we these are real things that this happen. is real i'm not making it up this no, is like no but I'm, real sa thing, I'm saying you know? this yeah. is like people who are listening you want to know what yeah. breast cancer is like yeah you know hormone positive her2 negative breast cancer this is what it's like yeah. blood coming out of your vagina that yeah. is not it's not coming through the urinary tract it's. It didn't seem like it was the lining being shattered. It was like no. this bright red blood. It wasn't right. making sense. Right, and they hospitalized me because it was so. It was so heavy, uh, much more heavy than typical. So thank you. I want to pause and just say, you know, not pause the podcast, but just pause this conversation for a moment and say thank you so much for your honesty and your generosity yeah. in this conversation because 
someone else is listening to this mm-hmm. and went through that or, or may go through it right. or is going through it mm-hmm. right now as they're listening and they're saying, well, my doctor told me it was my bladder. Maybe it's not, you know, or they're hearing this conversation and they're saying, they're thinking about how their intuition, their instinct, you know, it told them to do one thing. And the doctor said, no, I don't think it's that. And maybe now after hearing this, they're going to call their doctor's office and right. say, no, I actually want to have Just this looked this. at. Yeah. Please check this. Just check. And you might you, be right, but you should if, check. And if you won't, no problem. Because reminder, our doctors work for us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The insurance pays them, yeah. but we have final say. And we hire them through the financial support of our insurance. Mm-hmm. And when we we don't feel we're a match, if we have it, yes, if we have it. But yeah, we do forget that. We sometimes think they're doing us a favor and that our insurance company is doing us a favor. I mean, this idea that, oh, you know, they're doing me a favor and now my doctor gets to tell me what to do. There's no favors. No. It's not a favor. And so your honesty may encourage someone listening to this to go to their doctor. And again, if their doctor... If you as a listener, like if your doctor says, well, you know, I don't see any reason to do that, you actually get to say, well, then I'm going to ask a different doctor if they will look into it. Right. Because this is your body and this is your life. And a doctor may have experience and they may have statistics and they may have all the wisdom and training Mm -hmm. that they've gotten, but they don't know your body. Exactly. And when those doctors told you, take the pill and drink the water, and you said, you know, it just doesn't feel like that. So they looked one more time and they found it. So you asked for it and they checked and they saw what? That it was coming out of your... That it was my... It, it seemed to be a very strong period. And so they just hydrated me. We waited till things slowed down. I went home and I never had another period. And that's the only gift that cancer gave me. Because <laughs> people are like, oh, you got a gift, gift, gift. I'm like, well, I'm not one of those people that feels like I necessarily got a, any gifts from cancer. But never having my period again certainly is something that I do not miss. So. Was a bonus? Oh, that was a bonus. Yes. <laughs> So, but you know, that when you were talking about the, the sores that you had and the nurses looking at you, yeah, that made me think of this story, yeah, a few other ones, but that we go through that are not part of a typical, what people think of as the experience. Yeah. And I just think like, if I, I don't know what to tell people going into it, just don't you know, roll with things. There's going to be things that happen and, you know, you're going to have to, it's not just going to be chemo, radiation, surgery, done, back to my regular life. We wish. But there's all, like there's the all diaper that I wore. sidebars. Like the diaper that I wore when I was getting radiation. Oh. And the diaper I wish I had been wearing one day during the radiation treatment and I wasn't. Oh, no. Yeah. It's, See, these are the things I mean, that there's, there's, it's, Yeah. It's fucking hell. Going all over, all over the floor. Cancer treatment. Oh, couldn't get the door open. Oh. all over the floor. And then my incredible wife at the time helps me clean it up. I'm like, please don't clean it up. You want to talk about shame? You know, my, my muscles in my back are just locking up because I'm just like so hurting. That, uh. Like, you know, I just pooped all over the floor, and now she's helping me clean it up because she loves me and I'm hurting. And I, it was so hard to be okay. Yeah. With her doing that. You know, you don't, that's something you just like talk about wanting privacy. Right. Yeah, that's where I wanted privacy. Yeah. And I was getting radiation and it had me bloated and it gave me the runs. And I, 
wasn't wearing a diaper unless I left the house, mm-hmm. an adult Depends undergarment. Type of thing. Yes. Yeah, whatever they are. Yeah. I didn't wear one unless I left the house. And mm-hmm. I hated wearing them. Yeah. I don't I don't think I was hiding them under my sweatpants, you know? Uh-huh. And uh I didn't wear one and I went all over the floor. Oh. It was so you know, that's just like, and you know, w- take That's got to be one of the worst parts of the experience cuz not only did it feel awful physically, but it felt awful just you know, in your soul and in your yeah. your, your whole person. Yeah. Shame just like yeah. You know, in, in shame, I, you know, in, in my in my emotions, uh, rushing through my body, mm-hmm. just, you know, um, just you know, just feeling like you know, feeling weak, feeling uh, incapable, yeah, incontinence. I mean, just yeah. like oh, and it, it happens to people, like you know, like that that kind of yeah. that shit happens to people, and and we know people that it's happened to, but you know, when it wants to go through that. Yeah, and again, I want people to hear that that yeah. this happens. Like, if that happened to you, it's like you're not the only person. No, nope. and I may be the only or one of a few people you've heard speak about it. But oh my goodness, it happens. We go through so yeah. much. It's at the end. In the end, it's worth it. I wouldn't want somebody to listen yeah. to this and be like, "Oh my God, all these Scare other things could happen." Forget it. I'm just gonna not gonna deal with it. It's worth it. I mean, it's it's you get you just get through it. You have support. You have people there. It's just it's incredibly humbling experience. Yeah, and I love my life. And you have an awesome life. And I had to go through some incredibly humbling experiences, scary yeah. experiences. Yeah. And you get through it, yeah. and you know you're not alone. There's a lot more of us going through this, and that's why this conversation is happening. And you have a wonderful son who is, mm-hmm. oh my God, so tall now. So tall now. Yeah. But he was just a little tyke when yeah. you were going through all that. He was, when I first got diagnosed, he was five months old. And yeah, my other really boy, my stepson, he was he was nine. Oh. Yeah, and it's tough. It, it really had an impact on the family, you know. My little guy, he didn't, uh, I don't, you know, he didn't know. He was just a little peanut doing whatever. But his mm-hmm. older brother really went through a lot with all the attention going towards me mm. and him not getting the attention that. He's uh, too young. He didn't know. Yeah. That he was used to getting from his mom and from me, but, you know, but from his mom. And uh, he and I recently talked about that over the holidays. And it's, you know, it's a. Uh, it impacts us so many ways. Yeah. And Everyone, it happens to a cancer. Uh, cancer happens to a family. Yes, it does. Yeah. It, it, and sometimes it happens to a community. If mm. you're a person mm-hmm. who's, you know, really mm-hmm. a part of the community. And so, yeah, you had two implants then, and then yes, you got sick. Yeah, I started getting um, symptoms that, like I said, I thought were menopause or just long-lasting effects of having gone through chemotherapy. Um, little things like, well, little things, like my certain, my joints hurt and I, um, you know, met fog, brain fog. Hmm. That actually did, that probably, that maybe was from the chemo because it has gotten better. Um, but yeah, it was really bad for a while. And I'm already kind of an artsy kind of, you know, some of my friends probably see me as a little bit flaky or whatever. So I remember telling one of my coworkers, I can't remember 
you know, I can't remember things. My, my memory, I'm, I feel so flaky. She actually said to me, she goes, but that's not that different for you. <laughs> and I mean, I, I understood why she said it. But on the other hand, I was like, you don't understand how much worse it is inside this head right now. But that, that symptom got better. Um, but other things started to get really bad, uh, like worse. Um, it got to the point, what was really the turning point, what helped me discover that breast implant illness is a thing. I had never heard of it until the fall of 2017. And it's been around. I was diagnosed in 2011, and there were already women calling it that. But people don't listen to women sometimes in history. You know, like sometimes they don't get listened mm-hmm. to. It has to be a whole lot of them making a whole lot of noise before anyone listens. Um, anyway, um, getting back to 2017, I was starting to have issues swallowing. Um, like, what's what's going on here? I, I'm, you know, things are getting stuck in my throat, and I can't. I'm, you know getting a little scared enough to have me look at my neck and I see that I have these swollen lymph nodes on the right side which is the side where I had the cancer so that's you know always in the back of your Mm -hmm. mind you know Mm -hmm. so I have the swollen I'm having problems so okay let's get this checked so I go to an ear nose throat the first time they scoped me was they scoped me down the esophagus they wanted to make sure it wasn't you know any esophageal cancer probably so that was fine Thank God. Um, so the next time they scoped me, they went up my nose and down my throat and they, to check the base of my tongue and scared the bejesus out of me because the, the doctor, the ENT, said to me, he goes, well, I don't, he goes, I don't think that this is what it is, but I just want to at least tell you that there's a chance that this is base of tongue cancer. And I was just like, fuck me what and you know then I of course went online and looked up base of tongue cancer and that is that that deforms your face oh my gosh the treatment so I was just like no no this can't be so they ended up diagnosing me with GERD wanting me to take medicine for that and I just changed my diet and the GERD was a little bit more you know manageable and I was almost going to get checked for rheumatoid arthritis because of the joints when I landed upon this uh, group online that is called um, Breast Implant Illness and Healing with Nicole. There's a website and there's a Facebook mm-hmm. page, Breast Implant Illness and Healing with Nicole. And that's where I found women with all the same types of symptoms. And, and then they did this, they give you the top 10 symptoms that most people with it have. And I had all of them. Um, wow. I just knew, I knew as soon as I, I just, my body was like, yeah, duh, this is it. This is the only thing that really makes sense. And even if it isn't, I'm getting these things out just in case. So, so you had symptoms affecting your mind mm-hmm. and your mental clarity. Mm-hmm. You had aches in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the you joints had- were getting worse and worse, like very achy. Get, get up in the morning, kind of takes a minute to not limp on your feet. So, and you had lumps in your throat. Yeah. And you, did some research and you put this all together Somehow. and figured out that you had breast implant illness. Well, that's, yeah, that's what started to show up in my searches and I self-diagnosed myself with that. I've never been diagnosed with it because they don't diagnose people with it as far as I know. There may be some doctors that do at this point, but it's not really an official diagnosis. Mm. 
Breast Implant Illness and Healing by Nicole. Yeah. On Facebook. Yeah. You found it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not something that's recognized. No, it's becoming more and more recognized though. Women, lots of women making lots of noise. So you had these side effects. Yes. And so what did you do? Who did you call? Well, as soon as I found out that that's what it could be, I went to her website. I looked, I found out more about it, such as you can't just take them out. That because once they're in their body, your body forms the scar tissue around the implant and you have to take the scar tissue out too. It's called encapsule, uh, I can't remember. But it's, 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 you don't just get, some doctors will just take the implants out and they won't take out the scar tissue. And those women very often stay sick. So the doctors that oh. do take out the implant and also take out the scar tissue, the capsule of scar tissue that forms around the implant, those women tend to improve. Um, and people should just go to that website and just read what the women are saying. And so luckily I learned that from that group. So I didn't just go get them out. I found out that they needed to be taken out the correct way. Thank God. Cause that's another surgery. There's women that are, that are on that group that have had several uh, implants. Like they had, they've had them replaced several times and that when they got explanted, um, a good surgeon would find that the capsules from the previous ones in there. So they really do exist and it's scar tissue so that, you know, your body fights that. You yeah, know? This is, I looked it up. It says capsulectomy is the surgical removal of scar tissue or capsule that has become thickened and hardened around a breast implant. Yep. Thank you for looking it up. The capsule is composed of fibroblasts, collagen, and blood vessels and is known as capsular contracture. Okay. So you had to have the implants removed and... The capsules. The capsular contracture, the capsules removed. And I also found out something new. I also found out that I had to have my pectoral muscles sewn back together. So this is only for women that have implants after breast cancer because what they do in order to get the implant to stay in there, they put them underneath the pectoral muscle. And apparently, according to do that, they have to cut the pectoral muscle. And I didn't know that I had cut muscles until... I went to the surgeon who took the implants out of me and told me, oh, and by the way, we will stitch your pectoral muscles back together. She's also a microsurgeon. And I was like, she goes, you didn't know they were cut, did you? It's like, oh, nope. my goodness. Like, That's typical. So can I ask you a question? Sure. How was it received when you called the doctor? And I'm curious which doctor you called and said, I don't know, did, did you say, I believe I have breast implant illness? Did you just say, I want these things removed? I went to my regular doctor who was unable to see me. So I saw her assistant and I told her, these are making me sick. I want to get them out. I need a referral from you for my insurance to cover it. Um, And I just told him that I told him all the symptoms I was having. It turned out that because I had cancer, I really didn't have to, I really, it really wasn't too hard for me to get my insurance to cover it, removing them. Um, But women who have them for enhancement reasons, Sometimes their their insurance just won't. They just can't get the insurance to cover taking it out. And then sometimes they can't afford to take them out. Oh, my goodness. And they're sick. Lots of women. Oh, my goodness. And it's it, that's, that, that's the tragedy. There are so many women that can't get them out. And can't afford it. Some of them probably don't know they need them out, but some of them know, and they just can't. They can't figure out why they're sick. Yeah. But the ones who have figured it out 
and you know they just don't have the money. You maybe you had a few extra thousand dollars to get them in when you're in your twenties. Now you're really oh. sick, and you just don't have because it's to get them out right. You're talking about between six and eight thousand dollars for the surgery to have them removed. Yep. To to get it done right with the capsules, it cost me eight thousand dollars, around eight thousand dollars, and I went to. But I did go to one the of the best surgeries. insurance paid that or that was out of pocket? That's how much it cost because it was out of network. My insurance paid about 5000 of it. So that's not counting, you know, getting there, staying in a hotel. Um, right. Yeah, all that other stuff. But you were clear if I have to pay $3,000 plus travel and hotels, I'm going to get these things out of my body. Absolutely. I'm very grateful that my partner, Clug, actually paid for it. He helped me. Um, Amazing guy. Yes. And he never, and he was just like, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back. So, mm. yeah. And so so he, he put a lot of money into that. Incredibly generous. But now he has a healthier girlfriend. Clearly loves you. <laughs> yep. So. And so you now do not have breasts. Right. I don't. I'm flat as fuck, as we like to say. All right. <laughs> and they don't get in your way, you said. No, it's very comfortable. And I'm stronger. Um Really? Because she stitched my muscles back together. I'm guessing that's why. And I don't have this implant under my pectoral muscles. So my pectoral muscles can be the what the way they're supposed to be now. So yeah, so now I can hold a plank. Oh my God, I couldn't hold a plank for more than, oh, I don't know, like 30 seconds tops. Because your pecs have been cut. I believe so. But since I've had, since I've went flat, I can hold, I can hold a plank. Hmm. Still but not as long as before you had the surgery, could you? I never planked then. Did okay. I? <laughs> I don't think curious. I was doing yoga. But I, you know, that's a good question. It would be interesting to know. Can I ask you about not having breasts? Sure. How is that for you, a woman in this Western world? Yeah. Um, because I don't know, I could come up with ideas. You know, I, obviously, I want you to only answer as comfortable as you feel speaking about. I'm but I'm perfectly curious. comfortable. I'm perfectly I'm comfortable answering this. I'm curious what that's like. I'm, um, I'm 52. I think that makes it easier. I thought you were younger than me. You did not. But thanks for <laughs> saying that. <laughs> You're like much younger than me. Oh, anyway. Um, I'm thank you. 40. How old am I? I'm 49. Yeah. You haven't even, you're not even on the dark side yet. You haven't hit 50, but <laughs> when's your I'm, birthday? April 9th. All right. You guys, there's a big party. Yeah. Bring all the black balloons. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm glad to be 50. Absolutely. That's how I felt. Someone else told me they were like, you know, oh, I'm 50 now. I'm, you know, they were bummed out. I'm like, you want to know what? I'm glad to even be able to be 50 because I had cancer twice. Once the fact you have that cancer, I, yeah. I'm like, whatever. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. I appreciate your humor. I appreciate your humor. No, you know, but yeah, I, I will. There is something in our culture, you know, about turning 50. All these numbers we turn yep. to, and, you know, we have these ideas in our heads when we're younger of what that age will be, or we have someone in our life. You know, I thought, you know, when, you know, you turn 50, you're like, you're old people. Mm-hmm. I was uh, a couple of years ago. A woman I was friends with said she wanted to hook me up with us, you know, find someone for me to date. And she goes, so how old are you? I said, I'm 47. She goes, okay, so what do you think? I'm like 35 to 50. I looked at her, I was like, 50? What? And she looked at me like, what? I go, 50? Never date someone who's 50. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm two and a half years from 50. <laughs> but when you were 20, 23 would have been fine, right? <laughs> right. But but the number 50 just yeah. like, it, 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 it wasn't 
it is whatever I made up in my head. And clearly what you made up in your head, what we all make up in our head about these ages. Oh, yeah. Versus like we are who we are. And every time you get married to a number. Yeah. Yeah. And we do. These numbers are like (laughs) milestones in our life. So yes, you can bring, you can bring black balloons to my, oh, uh, oh, absolutely. We're going to make, we got to treat you like you're geriatric just for the fun of it. Bring a walker. But I agree. I think 50 would have been a lot (laughs) harder for me too, if I hadn't dealt with cancer. But having dealt with cancer and turning 50, I feel it. I would think that across the board, most people are like, I'm still here. You know, there's that. So, oh yeah. So, so for me, yeah. So not having breasts is, um, well now it's been a year. Let's see. I got them out in May, 2018. So it's been over a year now going on close to two years. So I'm getting used to it. At first it was, I felt very self-conscious. Um, uh, I did a lot to hide it. I have, and, and you know, that's the thing. If, if a woman doesn't want to walk around, flat it's so easy to you they sell like uh, bralettes that add a little bit of uh, breast form you don't mm-hmm. have to have the breast form inside your chest in in your skin you can ha- you can just wear something you know in your clothing you can wear a little bralette bra. and that they're comfortable and it just you know you can wear a little t-shirt no one will know um and it's really it seems like such a better option than putting silicone breast implants inside your body so I did that a lot at first um I, I bought a lot of new clothes like on the they have these great secondhand store things on online I was a little addicted to them for a while I had to reel myself in but buying things with ruffles just scarves mm. just different things that help just hide that you're completely flat yeah um it's actually some it's maybe even a little bit concave which is worse uh you you know because that's all right. You know, you want to have a little bit of something there. But um, I am also lucky that the guy that I'm with is an ass man. Sorry. I don't know what else to, I don't know what else to call it. There's, there's T and A. Some guys are more for the T. Some are more for the A. I got lucky with that too. But I was small chest to begin with. So obviously it wasn't that as into that. So. But you're more comfortable with it now. I'm more comfortable with you it now. You had to find your way I, through it I, in the beginning though. Yeah. I never felt less fem- feminine for not having breasts. Okay. Um, I actually felt less feminine when I didn't have hair. Being bald felt more emasculating than not having breasts for some reason. Emasculating? You mean you mean effeminating? You just said emasculating. <laughs> That's <was> funny. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a word for infeminate. That, that's we don't. I don't know that that's Do a we? word. <laughs> We have emasculated. Do we have an actual word that's effemulated? To to feel, to feel like someone's taken away your womanhood. There's got to be a word for that. To feel not feminine. But I don't know. The only thing that probably having a partner, you know, a healthy male partner. Yeah. I do sometimes feel. Like, I get it that it's not just my loss, it's his loss too. And I feel much worse about that. That's the thing that could make me cry right now, actually. That I'm not gonna. Um, the loss of breasts. The loss of his loss of having a partner with breasts. Mm. And uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll ask him, you know, are you okay? And he's, he's quiet. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to say the wrong thing, but I, I also know that he, he's, he obviously helped me get explanted. He wants me healthy. Yeah. He sees, he's attracted to me the way that I am. There's just a little, we don't talk about it. It's the elephant in the room. We don't really actually talk about it because I think he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to say the wrong thing. It's a sensitive topic. Mm. And so we just kind of, we just go about it. And so for me as a woman that has no breasts, but that has a healthy male partner who I've been with for 12 years now and love dearly and wouldn't, you know, like feel like, you know. I hope this is always enough for him. You've got that. Like every, probably every woman, as we get older, we always worry anyway about that. Right. Like his, but we do what you perceive as him as the elephant in the room. I mean, maybe for all you know, it's not an elephant in the room for him. Maybe he can see it's an elephant in the room for you. It, that's very possible. And he simply wants you to be happy and feel whole. Very, very feel loved. Probably you're probably, it's probably very likely that you're right. And, uh, it's just, I just wish I could know 100% that, you know, this is fine for him. But I don't think I'll ever really know. So and that's there for you. I just you. have There's, to be fine with it for myself. Yeah. And take Do what he says at face value. Absolutely. And I don't say that as like someone to teach you that. But for me to get like, you know, when I first got the colostomy, it was really hard when it came to intimacy to yeah. have this thing there. Yeah. Like at this point in my life, at this point with the colostomy, I got it in 2009. So it's been 10 years of it. And I'm like, hey, this is me. It's what I got. Mm-hmm. There was a woman that I was uh, intimate with and she got really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I felt compassion for her. It didn't bother me. That's I was fantastic. like, wow, she's, she's not okay with this. It didn't make you feel less okay with it? Had she been the first woman I was intimate with after I got it, it may have taken me down gotcha. a different road. Gotcha. I laughed with her about it later on. I was like, you want to know what? I said, if you were the first woman that I was intimate with, you know, you know, God knows it would happen to me. But, you know, that's, there's no harm, no foul. Like, I, I, it's, some people are uncomfortable and it's not an issue. And uh, I will be okay if in the future it's an issue for someone else. Like, you don't, we don't design ourselves, you know. Right. We are who we are, and. But you just you just brought up a whole other topic of being single. I have a partner that was with me when I was all whole, so he can at least think back and have the memory of it. And to be single and out dating somebody new, and then you know it's always it's hard enough. It's hard enough hmm. to be like, oh, are they gonna like the birthmark on my thigh? <laughs> or I don't actually have one. I just made that up. <laughs> but or you know whatever. Are they gonna like? what they see and yeah. then now we've got a little extra something that you know it's get is factoring in absolutely and and definitely could be a deal will is a deal breaker for many people probably and and not for others and it's just it is what it is yeah there came a point in my life when i realized that if something about me is a deal breaker for someone else that's a deal breaker but it's a deal breaker <laughs> for, for them it's not about me right it's about them. It's they. They like. I wrote a song. You know, they, she like what she like. She don't what she don't. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's not about you. Yeah. If a person likes apples and you're an orange, doesn't mean oranges are not delicious. They doesn't like oranges. They like apples. And if a person doesn't have the space to have a partner who has a colostomy, or to have a partner who doesn't have breasts, you know. 
you know, people say, well, I wouldn't want that partner anyway. Well, you know, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, but the reality is they, they, they're not a match for you. Yeah. You know, we, we, maybe there's so many wonderful things about them and we wish they could be. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, they're not. And right. one is a fantasy world, hoping someone could be something they're not. Right. And the other is reality. So like, I'm not saying that, you know, there's not going to be disappointment and sadness, you know, if a person isn't okay with it because it is an issue because it is a concern because our minds are real and we do get carried away with our imagination and our worries and our, our wanting to be desirable yeah. by others. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and it does come up and I just have found myself in a place where I'm like, this is who I am. I can't do anything about it. It's really <laughs> wonderful to be able to not take it personal and not, to say that this is something they're dealing with, this is their issue. I'm me, and I'm happy with me. And yeah. you know, I, I don't believe that I'm quite there where you are. <laughs> I feel like I might still take it personal, even though it it isn't personal. It is. It's very personal, but it isn't personal about you and your worth as a human being on this planet, and how good of a partner you'd be to another person. But it's so much easier to say that than to really feel it, you know? Yeah, I, well, you know, I got forced into it. Mm-hmm. I was single and had a colostomy. Yep. And uh, heck, when I first started dating, I also had the chemotherapy pump in my abdomen mm. that was designed, it was called the um, hepatic artery pump that pumped chemo into my liver Yeah. when I was getting the treatment. And they asked that you keep it for five years in case you need the treatment again because they can't always put a second one in because they clip the line and leave the line in there. Okay. I remember you left that in for a while, but I didn't realize you got it out now. And so, you know, yeah, it's gone. That's great. After after five years being cancer-free, they removed it. And uh, I would uh, play with my band Mm -hmm. in, you know, I'd get chemo every other week. And so I would book gigs, not every of their week in between, mm-hmm. but like once a month, I was playing gigs with my band, and uh, I remember I had to put a band around my abdomen and put a piece of foam in front of the pump because my guitar was banging into it and it was hurting. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Ouch! It's right. It's right where your guitar. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, See, so, this is another one of those weird things that people right? you don't know until you're going through it. Like, what the, what the? Yeah, and so, the and by manual. the way, you know, who knew that playing music in between my chemo uh, treatments, they they lifted me up mm. to mm-hmm. be able to be play my songs and sing them and have an incredible band backing me up, mm-hmm. and the bar just, you know bouncing people having so much fun dancing and cheering to be able to have that in my treatments it was such a gift yeah and uh, you know there'd be times i'd be singing a song and the passion i remember the first time in one of those gigs i started singing i didn't even recognize my own voice i was like who is this and this was all the passion the pain that i've been going through you know being able to sing that out through the music it felt so good and i really want to mention there was a uh, this guy jack who owned a bar in Auburn, New York, called O'Toole's. And I called him one day and said, Jack, you know, I've got that gig coming up next week. I said, uh, 
I wasn't able to get chemotherapy because my counts were off. And so they postponed it a week. So we got to cancel the gig. I'm, I'm really sorry, you know. He said, Bert, don't worry about it. He said, I guess I'll tell you what. I goes, we'll, we'll book another one. We'll pick a date. Mm-hmm. And I'll book you for the following Friday as well. That way, if your chemo gets postponed, we'll still have a gig for you. And I was so moved by that and so appreciative. I'm such a great guy. That's so nice. And that's a little thing for him to do that was huge for you. <sighs> and you're even talking about it now, years later. Like, Yeah, this was in 2012. So nice. it's, yeah. it's going on eight years later. It's probably eight years, yeah. yeah. It's an amazing thing. Ah, oh, man, the things yeah. we go through. Yeah. Oof. So you had your, uh, you'd mentioned earlier when you got the phone call. The first phone call ever. Yeah, yeah. And you said your partner, your boyfriend, Mm -hmm. he he knew what call you were. He was. Oh no, you told me before, and you should say, "Oh my goodness, it's such a story." You were at work, and you got a phone call. Oh, that was a different phone call. I think your the very first phone call that I got telling me that I was diagnosed with cancer, with a biopsy. I was actually home that day. You told me you were at work. That was another time. That was the second call? So the that first was, call you were at home. Okay. The first call I was at home when, when I went from not having cancer to having cancer. That was at home. And that was just with Clug. And that was, I didn't cry. I didn't, I didn't believe it was true. I was, uh, you, uh, you must obviously be a mistake. Made, it must be a mistake. Yep. Um, how can this be? This doesn't make sense. And I just kind of hung up and sat, sat on the bed like, what the fuck? Really? And I think that's when I told you that I, I actually... Immediately had to let my boss and my, my two coworkers know, um, and they were the first people that I told. Clug knew because he just could tell from the phone call. Yeah. And I didn't tell my parents. I didn't call my mother until that evening because that was just kind of like my mother can wait. She can have a few more hours before she has a daughter that has breast cancer. And it was yeah. just, and I also like just, then I tell her, and she does the same thing I did to the nurse. She's like, what? No. It can't be true. It must be some mistake. It was like the same thing. Where it was just yeah. like having to go through that again. The thing that you're talking about, I was at work and I had, you know, I couldn't afford an iPhone, so I had like the best cheap phone that was sort of similar. That had <laughs> yeah, and so it wasn't a great phone, and it was kind of it would drop calls, and I got a call from after they gave me the MRI. So I went from you've got you've got cancer. We think it's like early early stage but we're going to do an MRI. So they do the MRI, and that's when they found out it was a little bit later stage and that, that I had multiple tumors. That's when I got that phone call. I was at work. And she goes and she tells me that it's, it's worse, it's all through the breast, and then I, the phone dropped. And I just was like, oh, my gosh. What the fuck? You know, so I, and I'm at work, and I'm just like, I, I went home. I just, I just said, I have to go home, and I just left, and I walked. I was a walking distance and I just walked all the way down the hill. My heart was just about pumping out of, you know, it was, it was pretty dramatic, but I was, I was probably having a panic attack. I didn't know at the time. Yeah. I get home, my phone rings again. It's the nurse. She's like, my God, the, the, it dropped. And then what she, what she wanted to tell me was that it, you know, that it, it was just in the breast, that they don't know that it's, it didn't show that it was spread outside the breast, but they did want to do a PET scan after that to make sure. So it wasn't quite as bad as, I thought it was death sentence, 
you know, the way that that phone dropped. So she meant it's worse than we thought, but it's not. We and we want to see how much worse, but but not that much. Right. But in that walk down the hill, you're like, this is it. This is it. I'm done. Yeah. Like, what the fuck now? How did my life just change from like, you know, I don't know. I had it. Things I was complaining about the other day that he wasn't doing the dishes. I'm making that up. No, I got what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) Suddenly, like, none of that matters. Right. Oh, yeah. But it was the first time where you waited before you called your mom. Yeah. Oh, and then this is actually, this is one of those weird situations that happened. So you get the PET scan to see if it's all through your body or if you're, if it didn't go anywhere. So I get the PET scan and I'm, I'm waiting for the results. Now this is a really, like, you really want to know the results of this. You do and you don't. I'm sitting there, Clug sitting next to me. The doctor is taking his time telling me all this other stuff. And I have a notebook in my lap that I'm using that I'd gotten from some conference at work. And the title of this notebook was Terminal. Lovely. And it had to do with planes, like at terminals and stuff. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but this was the notebook in my lap and I was about ready to lose my shit because I thought it was a sign, you know, like, oh my God, this sign oh where I'm, using, I'm waiting to find out. Oh my gosh. Can, this is just one of those little weird things that happen. I oft, I always forget about it, but that was, that was really fun. Then finally he, He's telling me, I think it took him seven minutes to get to the point where he told me that it hadn't spread. And those were the longest seven minutes of my life. Oh my goodness. Because I don't know why. I can't remember. I was just, I didn't hear anything he said until he finally told me, you know, the results of the, you know, it's not out of the breast. We didn't see anything else anywhere in your body. That's all I wanted to know. Seven unnecessary minutes. I walk in, sit down. Okay. First of all, it's not any worse. It's not any, it's not out of the breast. I don't know it's why the they didn't notes. tell me that not, right away. Because right, right, I tell people when you go to an appointment, make sure you have A, a notebook, mm-hmm. and B, someone with Maybe you. Maybe one that doesn't say terminal on Maybe it. Maybe one that doesn't say <laughs> terminal on it. <laughs> because when they say you have cancer, I mean, the first thing I started thinking of is like, okay, how am I going to work? And like, wait, if I have to have surgery, how am I going to, you know, who, who, who's going to, take care of the kids and, and blah, 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 blah. And all these things. And I'm not hearing a word they're saying. Oh, right. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking about how is my life going to work? Mm-hmm. And as, and in your case, you didn't hear a thing the doctor was saying. Cause all you're waiting is, all you're waiting for is one thing. Yeah. Is it what you thought it was? Yeah. Or is it worse? Yeah. Cause I, I had the opposite. I had a doctor say to me, when I, when I got this, the, the metastasis to the liver, I walk in and he goes, well, I've got good news. I said, it's not cancer? He goes, oh, no, it is. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what? He goes, but it's, it's the good kind of metastasis. What? Like, I mean, like, okay. <laughs> Don't start off with I've got good news when you're going to tell me that I have a metastasis <laughs> good, in my liver. What he said was, but, but check this out, though. Then he goes, the metastasis... The cancer cells went from your large intestine through the portal veins, which travel from the large intestine to the liver. The metastasis did not go through your lymph nodes. Mm. So I had stage four cancer, but it hadn't gone, because you know, because once, for people who are listening, once cancer goes into your lymph nodes, it's like the super highway of your body. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a greater probability that the cancer is going to find other organs. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a scary moment. And mm-hmm. he said my metastasis went through the portal veins because it was not in any, any of the lymph nodes. And that's good news. And I was like, well, yes. Okay. Given the circumstances, it is good news. But it was just kind of like, I've got good news. Like, oh, yeah, you don't have cancer? Oh, no, you do. 
<laughs> but you got the good kind. That freaking sucks too. Hmm. So how I'm curious, how has having had cancer, how has that affected your life now? Of uh, well, I think having had a cancer experience, um, a couple of things. One is that I am now a person that if somebody else is going through something, I I have much more empathy and I I don't know how to say this. Instead of just kind of keeping people at arm's length, it's just I'm a better person because I will actually show up and like just make sure I'm available. I won't say, if you need anything, let me know. I will say, I'll make dinner for you on Wednesday. Is that okay? You know, like there's a difference. Mm. There's a difference. Like, so, um, and there's not, not to be said, if you need anything, let me know. That's great. But having been on the other end of that, I know that you're almost never going to take people up on that. So important to say, because it can be difficult to ask. I mean, I talked, I spoke about that earlier. Mm -hmm. It's like, so you know already, you're like, no, I'm not going to say if you need anything, let me know. You're going to say, can I make dinner for you on Wednesday? Yeah. Like you want. I'm more of a committed, like I'm ready. I'm going to do this for you. So just tell me when. And then the person can choose yes or no. Or or Tuesday. But you, or or Tuesday. (laughs) Right. You may be making it easier for a person. Right. To accept, or if you need a dr- ride, your gift. If you get more help. specific, if you want, I can drive you to the doctor's office. Just even that, something more specific than if you need anything. Not that that's a bad thing, but uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to offer someone something specific that you're definitely willing to do, and then they then they will more likely take you up on it. Yeah, because you've learned that. Yeah. If you choose specific things, you are available to do. Mm-hmm it's more likely, like you just said, the person is going to receive it. There's nothing wrong with saying, if you need anything, let me know. Yes. But it's more effective and likely mm-hmm. to be, more likely to be received if you make specific offers. Right. And it's a case by case too. Like sure. yep. I could say to my sister, if you need anything, let me know. And she knows that she can do that. Right. But like a girlfriend or somebody that I work with, that could come off as just a, the nice and right thing to say, but that, like, I, as the person that had cancer, I would take that as, well, that's the nice and right thing to say, but you don't really want me to inconvenience your life. But if you say, I'll give you a ride or I'll, I'll make you dinner, I feel a little bit more like, oh, you really are willing to do this. Yeah, I noticed you go to appointments on Fridays and, like, yeah. I, I was going to take Friday off. So, you know, if you need a ride, yeah. Or, or, or I can, you know, I'm flexible with my schedule. So if you need a ride on Friday, I'm happy to give you a ride to your appointment. Yeah. And and, and the person who hears that, this is, oh. Yeah. The person letting you know, I once had someone help me out, um, gave me a ride. And when we got back home, I said, thank you so much. He's like, ask me for more, please. He's mm-hmm. like, that wasn't, you know, that was nothing. Yeah. yeah. He just asked me, like, please ask for more. I want to help you. And that sure as hell makes it a little a easier surprise. to ask. It's it hard. does. It's hard to ask. And so you became a more compassionate person. I believe, yeah, a more, um, a little bit more outside of my own head and my own experience and a little more aware that other people are going through nightmares and sometimes you need, uh, you know, I guess I'm less selfish. Based. Let's just say I, I, I'm less selfish because... I want to be there for people and I know I know how much it's how important it is but that's on the good that's one of the good things um but I would say that I'm also less carefree less 
fearless. Um, so you have more fear? Yes. Um, I've learned... I've learned that I probably have post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, they don't tell you that you may likely get this or what percentage of people get it after a cancer diagnosis, but there is a large percentage in going through life with anxiety and not understanding why I have anxiety. Um, anxiety mm. that makes it difficult for me to do certain things. One of the embarrassing things that I hate to admit is that I actually... I can't drive just anywhere anymore. I actually have um, a pretty debilitating fear of driving over big bridges, and it's starting to be smaller bridges now. So I will very often just set mm. my little Google Maps to avoid highways so that, yeah. So I just want to pause and say I love that you said here's something embarrassing. Like I got to a point when I kept my blog that I said, okay, today what I don't want you to know is... Mm-hmm. Because, like, I believe that there is freedom for you, for every one of us, when we say, look, this is what is so embarrassing that I don't want you to know. Mm -hmm. Because once you tell everybody, then you don't have to hide it anymore. Right. And it's like, you didn't design you. It's like, right. you woke, you went through this, and now you find yourself like, what? Like, I am afraid to cross a bridge. Yeah. And, and I've driven cross country. I used to live out of state and I used to have to drive through like near Philadelphia to go back and forth. Like, yeah. So I've, you know, I used to have the ability to do that and I don't. And it's, it's made my world smaller. You know, like a friend saying, oh, there's this festival down in Philly. I'm like, my first thought, I'm not driving there. I'm not going. You know, unless you want to drive. And, you know, I don't want to be that person. That's so you'll ride over a bridge, but you don't want oh, to drive. Sure. Yeah. Oh, but you don't want to be the driver over yeah, the I can't bridge. Drive over a bridge. Huh. This is very specific. Yeah. No, you can drive, and I'll sit in the passenger seat, and we can go over the bridge. And like I might, with your if eyes it's closed? a really big bridge, I might kind of go and kind of look over the side. I might close my eyes a little bit, but I actually don't <clears> mind looking if somebody else is driving, which is even more ridiculous because if you're driving, you're in control. But I apparently feel like if I'm driving, I'm less in control. I don't like that. Um, you call it ridiculous, maybe because you don't understand it. But I don't understand probably it. Probably an explanation for why I've ta you're afraid I'm in to therapy drive over now, bridges. and I'm talking to someone about it. I just finished therapy. <laughs> I did ten months with an amazing therapist here in town. It's just I, I am biggest proponent of therapy. Mm. You know, we this whole you know doing it alone. It's like you know it's yeah. you know uh, we we are more alone in our lives now. I think than human beings have ever been, and yet Cult we're more connected at the same time. And, and right? we have, but we have more going on, and life is moving faster yeah. than it ever has. Yeah, I agree. And having a therapist is a wonderful thing to get a reflection of where I am and someone else's point of view, mm -hmm. someone else's interpretation, or again, reflection of what I'm navigating. Yeah, and it's kind of like, oh, I said that. Like, there's been times as my therapist, like I would just burst out laughing at you know i'm in a moment of of you know of grief talking to him about something very painful and then he shares back with me what i'm saying and i just start belly laughing i'm like that's what I, that's insane what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> so i love it it's funny you're working it's with good. a therapist now and you're looking yeah. at it We've, i've had i've only been i've seen her twice so it's been relatively recent that I've realized I need to talk to somebody. It's, it's been recent that my anxiety spiked to the 
level of where I went to work once in, I think it was August, and I had to go home. I had to just turn right around because, um, but there's things going on at my job where we have some new leadership and Mm -hmm. there were some new um, uh, presentations and things we had to do. And for me, it was just bringing, I think, bringing back memories of the last time we had new leadership and my whole group got laid off. Uh, And between that time and this time, I've dealt with all the cancer stuff. So I just don't have any padding on my nerves right now. Yeah. You're a different person responding to a situation that you have memories of. It's it it didn't go well. And yeah, you know, I am... I guess you'd say afraid of heights. Now, I've never been afraid. I, I used to run around on cliffs. You know, my friends would say like, hey, I'm clear you don't care about your life, but we don't want our day ruined now. So can you stop with the jumping all over the cliffs? And I was like, yeah, I will. That's very selfish of me. I apologize. But now, after my second diagnosis, we were on a rooftop, on a rooftop that was accessible and available for people to walk on. And I was walking on that thing like I was in the middle of a hurricane, terrified to be blown off the edge. Like my body was could barely move. Like, I absolutely know because I, I do the exact same thing on building tops. I'm not afraid of heights. I didn't, but now, oh my, now I watch a movie and they show heights and I'm like, my guts are just turning. It, it's, it's a brand, it, it's different. I wonder if, if it's just something that happens as you near the big five oh i don't know i don't know if it has to do with as we get older people have more fears i thought it had either to do with the fact that i had cancer yeah and i'm aware of my mortality yeah or perhaps that i have kids ah and i feel the need to uh you know um sustain this life of mine yeah in a way i hadn't felt before but it, it felt be far more related it, it, time wise it was more in sync with my second diagnosis that i mean that just makes sense to me if if we look at our nerves and our our ability to handle uh what do you call it things that make you nervous or anxious or stress i mean there's certain i think of it 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 just feels like padding like when you're feeling good and you're feeling like you can handle things it feels like your nerves just have this nice cozy padding and most of the time I'm walking through life feeling like mm. they're raw and exposed and I just can't handle one more thing. And But we have to be able to. So I, I don't want to be on, what is it, Xanax? I don't want to be on that. So yeah. I chose, I did have to take Xanax to go to work for that week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happen to have it because I need it to fly. Uh, unfortunately, you can't take it to drive over bridges. So flying, you're, were you afraid of flying before? Yeah. Okay, so that's something that's always that's better. a whole different story. Okay. But um, that's I had a roommate, and my roommate after college was actually on flight. What is the one in Syracuse University where they lost all the students? Flight one hundred three, flight three hundred one. Was that Pan Am? Pan Am flight three hundred one. Where were they flying to? They were spending their semester in Italy from SU mm-hmm. and it was, and they were on their way home and it, the plane blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. Oh my gosh. And my roommate came home early cause her family wanted her to be home earlier for the holidays. So she was not on that flight that she was originally on and all of her <sighs> friends were on and, and she couldn't fly without. And you failing. went to SU? I was her roommate after college, so I'm like a third party to this. I wasn't. I didn't know anyone on the flight. I only knew that she was a, supposed to be on the flight and then wasn't. 
Um, so I believe that, it, you know, she had, she needed Valium to fly and just... It spooked you too. It just spooked me too. Yeah. Post-traumatic stress syndrome. Anxiety. So the Xan- but you took Xanax for a week uh, when that transition happened at work. Yeah. And just to now, get through that week. So now, you're, now where you are with it is I don't want to take medication. I'm going to go to a therapist. Going to therapy and following her. Yeah, she gives you, they give you tools, things to do. Um, I, ha- I have had to take a half a Xanax like on two, two different occasions for things that were anxious, but uh, for the most part, nope. CBD oil is great. I've been yeah. using that. Um, yoga, meditation, steering yes. away from too much caffeine and sugar. All the things that we all know, but they really do add up to maybe not needing to take Xanax, for me at least, do all the yeah. things. I had a Green very juice. stressful time in my life in the mid-90s, and I started uh, doing 30 minutes of yoga and then 30 minutes of meditation every day and it turned me around fantastic i think that's that's one of the best things about and this, i best practice to have yeah. i meditate every single day every morning as soon as i wake up it's Wonderful. uh yeah it's it's provided me so much so valuable it's one of my daily practices as well oh. i would say that i'm more of a four that. times a week person but mm-hmm. but still one of my favorite times of the day Get up in the morning, go down to the studio, and sit with your coffee. Some I actually enjoyed doing a little bit of meditation before, and then doing the yoga, and then then after yoga, you're really ready to meditate, right? Mm, yeah, because you yep. kind of work work it all out. Yeah, yeah, like the body's then ready to mm-hmm. to yep. sit. Yeah, and when I do meditate in the evening after work, that's just like so sweet. You know, my morning meditation is just—it's almost you know habitual. Mm-hmm. But when I when I make space in the evening and meditate, mm. that's really wonderful. Just the the I guess you know, and I'm describing it, but I'm not saying what it actually provides. You know, it's so peaceful and feels so restorative, and uh, um, this brings me clarity, and I feel uh, you know if there was anxiety, it's usually gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, and I think a lot of that, a lot of the self care that I have made a daily practice is a result of being diagnosed. The first time I was diagnosed, I realized that I didn't. I pushed my body like a beast of burden. Oh. I didn't listen to my body. I told my body. I forced my body. Mm. You know, after my second diagnosis, I saw a meme someone posted about treating your body like a friend. And I read that and went, what? I like that. Yeah. And I was like, treat my body like a, like, I don't think I've ever done that before. That's, that's a great, that's a great way to, yeah. Yeah. And you like, take care of your friends. You listen to your friends. I used to badmouth myself whenever I'd make a mistake. Mm. Just call myself a stupid asshole whenever I'd make a mistake. And somewhere inside of these practices, like that stopped. That's I don't talk to myself that way anymore. I mean, maybe once in a blue moon I will, but it's just, you know, a friend of mine once said, you know, she said, if anybody spoke to me the way I spoke to myself, I would never be friends with them. I've heard similar things like, yeah. 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 
And it's just something. when I got diagnosed, each diagnosis, I learned and got connected a little bit more to myself and a little more committed to treating myself or providing my mind and my body with what it's, I was going to say with what it's need, with what it needs, but actually with what it's asking for. I actually started noticing what my body was responding well to mm-hmm. and responding badly to. And, you know, it really changed my relationship with myself because I realized, like, look, dude, your body is struggling. Hmm. Your body is, you know, uh, lots of people have cancer in their body and their body deals with it and gets rid of the cancer. And it's a part of the process of being alive. Then there's Mm -hmm. those of us where the cancer was not dealt with Mm -hmm. and we needed intervention medical intervention and that happened to me twice it's like hey buddy your body could really use your help and i've learned to really to soften to myself and like i said back when i first asked for help and when i had nurses taking care of me and so i'm flirting with them to try to not feel so you know emasculated which was a result of my own mind a result of nobody else you know all different levels of uh, of dealing with me and you know working with certain teachers mm-hmm. you know uh, learning to soften to myself and actually allow the me that I am the space to be and not try to be something I think I should be and that's been quite a road for me uh, yeah the whole what I think I should be that's a whole nother it's a whole nother podcast. Right. The word should. The word should. Yes. This is what I am. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Somebody. you so much, Shara, for being a part of this conversation with me. Thank you so much. I really love this. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find Shara's work on Instagram at artist Shara. That's A-R-T-I-S-T-S-H-E-R-A or at sharadelia.com, which is S-H-E-R-A-D-E-L-I-A.com. Find her work on Etsy by searching Artist Shara, all one word, and use the promo code BUTSERIOUSLY to receive your listener discounts. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all in the next podcast, and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.